Macmillan Audio presents Global Discontents, Conversations on the Rising Threats to Democracy. Interviews with Noam Chomsky and David Barsamian. Well, the um, Edward Snowden, the NSA uh, contractor, his um, revelations of uh, widespread uh, surveillance uh, of the Internet has caused uh, a degree of consternation uh, here in the United States and around the world. But uh, were you at all surprised by this um, electronic dragnet that uh, Obama has spun? Uh, Somewhat. Not a lot. I mean... I think we can take for granted that if technology or other means of uh, control and domination are available, then power systems are going to use them. In fact, uh, take a look at this morning's New York Times. Uh, There's one of the sections of the paper is on big data and that sort of thing. One of the lead articles is about the relation between the NSA and Silicon Valley. Silicon Valley is a symbol for the commercial use of surveillance. The NSA is going to Silicon Valley for help because the commercial uh, enterprises have been doing this extensively on a great scale, and they have the technological expertise and so on. So one of the stories is about how one of the security officers for, uh, I forget which, some company, was just taken, brought to the NSA to uh, help them out in developing Uh, sophisticated techniques of surveillance and control. So they're doing it, of course. Technology is available. You can use it for making money, for controlling people's attitudes and beliefs and direct them towards what you want them to do. So they do it. And the government is another power system, so they do it. In fact, uh, anyone who's paying attention to history should not be in the least surprised. So go back a century the U.S. war in the Philippines. The U.S. invaded the Philippines. A brutal war killed hundreds of thousands of people, finally suppressed the resistance. But then they had to pacify the population. There was very good studies of this, particularly by Al McCoy, a Philippine historian. He, long, detailed study, he shows that they were very successful in pacifying the population uh, using the most advanced technology of the day, not our technology, which I had a century ago, and uh, using other devices to sow distrust and uh, confusion and and develop antagonisms, you know, standard devices of counterinsurgency, but also with whatever technology you had. And he also points out that it was very few years before it came back home that Woodrow Wilson used it in the The Wilson administration used it in their Red Scare. Uh, That's natural, Uh, just like drones. Another admission today was that, uh, just today's news, that was hardly a surprise, is that the FBI has been using drones for surveillance. Well, uh, you use them against those you designate as enemies, and you very quickly adapt the same technology at home. In fact, more is coming. If you read the scientific journal, technical journals, they describe all kinds of things. The MIT Technical Journal, its last issue, has a news item 
describing the, uh, uh, about how uh, corporations are becoming wary about using computers with components manufactured in China because apparently it's technically possible to design hardware uh, that will detect everything the computer's doing. But of course, they don't add the next point, which is that if the Chinese can do it, the uh, U.S. can do it much better. So why use computers uh, with hardware from the United States? So pretty soon we'll be using computers in which uh, every keystroke is sent off to Obama's database in Utah. For years, uh, the military and the security system in general has been interested in the idea of trying to develop um, fly-sized drones which can get into your living room or, and uh, see everything that's happening and record everything that's happening. Uh, now the robotics labs have just gotten to the point where they're about ready to develop this technology. It's been hard, but they now seem to have gotten about to that point. So we can expect to see that. And, of course, uh, drones don't just... They were, at first, used for surveillance. Later, they're used for uh, murder. And uh, we can expect that, too. Uh, if uh, there's a suspect, maybe a person with the wrong idea, maybe Fred Hampton, instead of sending the Chicago police in to murder him, maybe murder him with a drone. Uh, we can expect that. Fred Hampton uh, being the uh, Black Panther activist in Chicago who was yeah. murdered in his bed along with another uh, Black Mark Panther, Clark. Mark yes. Clark, in 1969. And that was a real Gestapo-style assassination, which stayed undercover. Nobody didn't come up in the uh, Nixon hearings, for example. Now, you've noted uh, in response to these um, NSA revelations of uh, snooping jihad as I'm calling it, that uh, there's a kind of generational gap. I can't prove it because I haven't done a study or seen a study, but my impression is that there is a generational gap. The What I sense, at least from discussion and what I read, is that younger people are less offended by it than older people. And I suspect that it's... Uh, part of a cultural shift that's taking place to a, among younger people, particularly to a kind of an exhibitionist culture. So you put everything on your Facebook page. Maybe it's true, maybe it isn't true. You know, what you're doing, what you're wearing, what you're thinking. People make up fake personalities for themselves, and then they tell what that person is doing, all kinds of things. But everything has to be exposed. And if everything's exposed, so who cares if the government sees it? You know? Well, do you see this, I mean, this trend toward a surveillance state as um, part of this drift, drift toward totalitarianism, or is that too strong of a term? It's a move in that direction. But there's considerable gap between collecting data whatever the data means, and having a way to use it. Uh, one of the uh, more positive aspects of this, if you want to put it that way, is that the chances are there in, that the authorities do not have the competence to make use of the material. I mean, they can make use of it for particular purposes. 
So if you have this huge database in Utah, which is going to have massive information maybe on everybody sooner or later, if there's some person they want to go after, the next Fred Hampton, let's say, then they can get plenty of information about that person. And it may enable them to control or maybe kill that person. But short of that, it's not clear that they can do very much. We, we saw that in the past. I mean, the FBI, using more, much more primitive means, nevertheless had tons of data about everyone. Uh, you know, we all knew back in the 60s and ever since that every uh, activist organization is probably infiltrated with government spies. You saw that all the time. In fact, people pretty quickly learned uh, that if you want to do anything sensitive, you do it with an affinity group, not even with your comrades, because one of them's probably going to show a police informant. Uh, but you know, in many ways, they couldn't do much with this data. They could do particular things like uh, harming individuals. But uh, if you go to the trials, say the trials of the resistance, I was followed them closely. I was involved, in fact, co-conspirator, you know, and so on. So I sat in on them. It was amazing what the FBI couldn't do. Uh, the main trial, the Spock trial, Spock, so-called Spock coffin trial, the uh, where I was an unindicted co-conspirator, so I sat in on it. After the prosecution rested its case, the defense met and tried to decide what to do. And original thought had been, well, it's an open and shut case, so they'll just make the case where everyone's guilty, of course, openly. Don't deny it. In fact, proudly proclaim it. So we'll, they've made the case. We'll put on a political defense. Uh, defense decided, the lawyers decided uh, not to put on a defense at all because the prosecution case was so weak that the defense would just tie together connections that they hadn't found. Now, everything was in the open. Not everything, but a lot was in the open. You know, But they just didn't pay attention to it. So they didn't pay attention to the fact that people were standing up in Town Hall, New York, and saying, uh, we hereby conspire to undermine the Selective Service Act. They say, well, that's, can't pay attention to that. And apparently they spent all their time trying to figure out, like, where are we getting our instructions from? Um, is it Hungary, North Korea? You know, uh, what, are, what are we really doing? It can't be this stuff that's in the open. So they just missed everything. It was the same with the Pentagon Papers. Uh, when uh, Dan Ellsberg was underground, he hadn't yet exp revealed himself, uh, there were people distributing the papers. I was one of them. The press had no was after me all the time. I was getting regular calls from newspapers in the United States and abroad asking if they could have a piece of the Pentagon Papers. FBI never figured it out. Uh, after Dan surfaced and identified himself, then FBI agents came to my house to question me after. Apparently, they just hadn't been able to figure out what the press had figured out. And, you know, there's case after case like this. They, uh, their own mentality directs them to certain kinds of conspiratorial uh, actions, which may not be what exists. A lot of resistance is open. It's purposely open. You're trying to reach people, explain to them what you're doing. It's not underground. Some is. Like getting a deserter out of the country, you do it quietly. But uh, and not a lot of the, not saying... Uh, Let's refuse to pay taxes, or let's uh, uh, 
let's uh, break down this uh, legal system, which is uh, part of uh, uh, causing vast uh, atrocities and crimes. When Obama was first uh, elected, you were not part of the chorus of uh, cheerleaders. What about the, the continuities between Bush and Obama? Are there continuities? Oh, yeah, there are real continuities. I mean, there are some differences. I mean, Obama extended enormously some of the more harmful and, in fact, criminal aspects of Bush's programs. I mean, Obama is credited with having withdrawn troops from Iraq and withdrawing from Afghanistan, but that was underway. Um, it was clear that the U.S. had was basically defeated in Iraq. Its war aims, which were explicit by the end, were unrealizable, and the Bush administration was starting to withdraw and defeat. In Afghanistan, they plainly can't, couldn't keep up. They, actually, Obama expanded the war uh, in the hope that you'd get a, some kind of victory. It didn't happen. They're going to have to withdraw. So that's uh, uh, nothing uh, special there. But other programs he extended, like the drone program, uh, right away it expanded rapidly under uh, Obama. And uh, we should remember that this is an international terrorist campaign. It's the world's leading international terrorist campaign. I mean, if you're living in a village in uh, Yemen or uh, North Waziristan or wherever it is, and you don't know whether in five minutes there's going to be a sudden explosion across the street and they'll blow away a bunch of people who are standing there and maybe you'll get hit by a, a, a side effect. Uh, you're terrorized. You're living with this all the time. That's sheer terror by the narrowest definition of the term. And this is going on on a massive scale. It's an international terrorist campaign. There's a lot of talk about you know, signature strikes, and uh, we don't actually know the person you're trying to kill, and so on. Yeah, that's bad. But the whole idea is outrageous. It's pure terrorism on a massive scale that, you know, Al-Qaeda couldn't dream of. Uh, furthermore, this uh, campaign is generating terrorists and is known to be doing so. From the highest level, uh, officials and commentators have pointed out that... Uh, these attacks are creating potential terrorists. That's perfectly obvious why. Take, say, the marathon bombings in Boston. A couple of days after the marathon bombings, there was a drone attack in Yemen. Usually we don't know much about these things. This one we happen to know about because uh, by accident there's a young man from the village who was attacked, who's in the United States, and testified at the Senate. And he described what happened. He said for years the jihadis in Yemen had been trying to turn the village against the Americans, but it hadn't worked because they didn't know anything about the United States except essentially what he told them, which was favorable. He said one drone strike, the whole village wants to, it hates America, and out of hating America, you're going to get people who are trying to do something about it. Uh, so it's a terror-generating machine, uh, which actually puts an interesting light on the discussion about the NSA exposures, the government justification for the surveillance every day in the newspapers, uh, Thomas Friedman's articles, you know, the big thinker and so on. They say, well, you know, we have to sacrifice some privacy for security. 
that we're talking about a government which is trying, which is acting in a, consciously to undermine security. They're creating a terrorist threat beyond any that exists. Uh, how can we not just collapse in ridicule when they're saying we have to have surveillance to promote security? Actually, it goes well beyond this. Uh, the idea that governments place a high priority on security is is mythical. I mean, you can learn it in international relations courses, but just take a look at history. It's easy to show that it's not true. Much more serious cases than this. could go through them if we have time, but there's very interesting cases. Um, Obama's assault on civil liberties and prosecution of whistleblowers, what's driving that? That's a good question. Um, As you mentioned before, I really didn't expect very much from Obama. In fact, I'd it's not in retrospect. I wrote about him in print before the primaries even, just using his website. It's pretty clear that this is smoke and mirrors. Uh, but the attack on civil liberties does surprise me. Precisely for your, because of what you say, I don't see the motivation. I don't understand what he gains by this enormous escalation of the attack on civil liberties, which is pretty striking. I mean, the whistleblowers is one case. You know, it's prosecuting more whistleblowers than the entire history of the country. But that's not all. I mean, there are cases that have been brought by the Obama administration to the courts, uh, which are a major attack on civil liberties. And one of the worst ones is a humanitarian law project case. This is a legal assistance group that was giving legal advice to the PKK, the Kurdish group, which is on the terrorist list, giving legal advice. The Obama administration wanted to expand the notion of material support for terrorism to include advice. Material support used to mean uh, handing you a gun, you know. Now it means giving you advice, telling you here are your legal rights. And if you look at the discussion, the colloquy, and the court proceeding, it's pretty clear that they interpret this to mean almost any interaction with what they call terrorist groups. So let's say if I meet uh, Nasrallah, head of Hezbollah, because I'm interested in knowing what they're doing, you know, that is an interesting person and so on. Uh, well, that could be called material support for terrorism. Uh, that's a tremendous attack on civil liberties. This is incidentally quite apart from the fact, uh, which is un- unfortunately unquestioned, about the legitimacy of the terrorist list. Why is it legitimate in the first place? Why is the state executive granted the authority to capriciously decide you're a terrorist? Do they have the right to say that Nelson Mandela is a terrorist and to insist on that up until a couple of years ago? Why do they have the right to say, as Reagan did in 1982, that Saddam Hussein isn't a terrorist just because they wanted to give him aid? Can we even take this seriously? If somebody's put on a terrorist list, they have no recourse. There's no way of saying, look, I'm not a terrorist. Uh, They don't have to give any evidence. There's no uh, judicial uh, cover for it. It's just uh, executive authorization for murder. We shouldn't accept it in the first place. Uh, But even if it is accepted, which it shouldn't be, uh, why should we accept this concept of material assistance, Uh, which says if you... uh, Tell them the legal rights, or maybe even if you have discussions with them, you're helping terrorism. 
To get back to the um, to the U.S. Uh, today, given the structural constraints of the national security state, for want of a better term, can a president fundamentally change U.S. foreign policy? Sure, you have to appeal to the public. I mean, they can't. A, a president can't just say, "Okay, I'm going to change it." But the president has a lot of power to reach the public. Um, FDR used it. Lyndon Johnson used it. Uh, that's uh, Public opinion, it can, I think, easily be turned against the national security state. Um, if you look at polls, plenty of people are opposed to the surveillance. The ones who support the surveillance are the ones who are as deluded as people like Thomas Friedman or Bill Keller of the New York Times, you know, who think that, well, we have to do this because it's for our security, not noticing that uh, at the same time, uh, the very administration who's, that's calling for uh, defense against terrorism is maximizing terrorism and the threat against us. But uh, among the general public, there are many who are understandably deluded about this. And these are things that a president could overcome. A president could reach the public and say, uh, look, uh, these operations that we're carrying out are generating potential terrorists, and uh, the way to protect ourselves from terrorism is to stop doing that and not to uh, uh, put all data about your personal life in a database in Utah. I mean, that's not going to have any effect or marginal effect. The president could do this, uh, and I think it would get enormous support uh, if it was done not just one speech, but uh, making this clearer and using the resources available to the executive to make it clearer. I mean, I presume there are I suppose if the president said it, even Thomas Friedman would repeat it. After all, that's his job, repeat what the president said. And it would get, i just pick him as a symbol because he's in many ways the most egregious of, of the performers. Well, one thing that comes up uh, periodically, almost monotonously, is the frustration with the traditional parties, the Democrats and the Republicans, and people that, you know, exploring or um, trying to create some kind of initiatives for alternative parties. What are the pitfalls of, of going in that direction? Well, the first thing we should do is uh, be realistic about the party system. Years ago, it used to be said kind of sardonically that uh, the United States has only one party, the business party, with two factions. That's no longer correct. It has only, it still has one party, the business party, but it has only one faction. The faction is moderate Republicans. Uh, they're called Democrats, but they're in fact what used to be moderate Republicans as everything's shifted to the right. There's another political organization, the Republicans, but they have, are barely making a pretense of being a, a normal parliamentary party. I mean, they're just in lockstep service to wealth and power. Uh, they can't get, have a catechism you have to repeat. Uh, uh, even conservative commentators like Norman Ornstein just describe them as a, a kind of a, some sort of radical extremist organization that has no role in a political system. And that's true. They have to get votes somehow. So they've mobilized sectors of the population that they can uh, hope will be uh, irrational and extremist and... Uh, so on. So that's so we're we're essentially down to one 
party, the business party, with moderate Republicans as the sole faction and a kind of a, a radical obstructionist group uh, trying to block anything from happening and making things worse, and reaching plenty of the population. Now, the population is extremely demoralized. Now, one, one way you see this is in polls which ask people two questions uh, on particular issues, like, say, taxes, health, uh, security, whatever, which party to support. And often a majority support the Republicans. The second question is listing their policy. This policy, who do you support? Oh, the Democrats. So we support the Republicans, but we oppose the policy. Uh, the most striking case of this is taxes. That's been polled for, I think, 35 years. And the results are very consistent. A large majority favor higher taxes on the wealthy and corporations. Uh, same majorities also say they support the Republicans on tax policy. Republican tax policy is the opposite. But we support the Republicans on the policy that we oppose. Uh, that's 35 years of, of uh, polls. And it, it, this is even true of... Uh, uh, what's called the right-wing voters, you know. Uh, uh, many of them support basically social democratic policies like more spending on health, on education, but not government, you know, just what the government does. Uh, the result is that the picture that you get is a population that is so confused and demoralized that they just can't see what's in front of them. And this goes along with rising contempt for institutions, all institutions, uh, Congress, uh, single digits, favorable voting, uh, banks, corporations, uh, science, uh, anything. Just, they're all against us, uh, contempt. Uh, and some of the attitudes are really mind-boggling. Like among people who call themselves Republicans, I think about half think that Obama is intent on imposing Sharia law, not just on the United States, but on the whole world. And about a quarter think maybe he's Antichrist. You know, I mean, they're tapping elements of irrationality that are almost beyond description. Uh, people who think we have to have guns to defend ourselves from the federal government. Uh, people like uh, the person who may be our next president, Rand Paul, who was recently orga trying to organize uh, opposition to the UN Small Arms Treaty. Uh, small arms means anything less than a jet plane, you know, uh, which is just murdering people all over the world, in Mexico and everywhere else. Opposition to it on the grounds that it's a plot by the United Nations and the socialists, Obama and Hillary Clinton, to take away our guns so we won't be able to defend ourselves when the UN comes... Uh, uh, to take away our sovereignty or maybe to commit genocide. There's a guy who could be running for president. He's kind of like uh, somewhere in outer space, you know. But it's, uh, it's, it's what you find in a country that's become extremely demoralized and confused and uh, overwhelmed by propaganda and uh, beginning with commercial advertising up till, uh, uh, you know, the national policy and just all they can, and, and, and a population is very much atomized, so people don't get together. You know, they don't 
interact in ways that are politically significant, uh, discuss things, uh, form plans, you know, have uh, 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 political meetings. Uh, you know, it's just gone. I mean, totally solidarity. Solidarity. Uh, I mean, I, I don't want to exaggerate. There are substantial sectors of the population for which this isn't true at all. Uh, the, uh, the plenty of people, including young people, who are very motivated by solidarity with others, uh, mutual support, uh, uh, struggling against uh, uh, dangers. In fact, we haven't even mentioned the most serious ones. Well, I hesitate to call um, Occupy a movement, but let's say, let's use the term. Um, Occupy has receded, clearly. Uh, why do you think that happened? I'm not so sure it happened, frankly. I don't think it's clear at all. The Occupy tactic has receded, but that was obvious from the first day. You tent encampments. Uh, uh, an encampment, you can't do that. You, know, you can do it for a while, but that's not the kind of tactic you can continue with. In fact, all tactics have a kind of a half-life, and this one couldn't last more than a few months, so it's only a question of whether it sparked something, which it did. It very quickly uh, lit a spark, which I wouldn't have expected. There were hundreds of, if not thousands, of such movements around the country and around the world. And it linked up with other such movements, and it's still going on. Uh, just a couple of weeks ago at the Left Forum, there was a, a, a parallel demonstration in Zuccotti Park, uh, which was in solidarity with simultaneous demonstrations in Greece and Spain, I think they were actually communicating, and, and Turkey, you know, just tucked in square, you know. That's solidarity, and it's growing solidarity all over the world, you know, mutual, a lot of plenty of mutual interaction and, uh, and support. And that's also uh, what was the Occupy movement. A lot of it has gone into neighborhoods, uh, things like uh, blocking foreclosure or... Uh, 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 neighborhood organizing, uh, opposition to police brutality, um, you know, fixing schools. Uh, there was uh, assistance given to the victims of her, uh, Superstorm Standy in New York, that, for example. That made, the head, that made the papers, in fact, because it was visible enough. And it was. They were the first responders, actually. But that's because they're there. You know, If you're not there, you can't do it. And they're there doing other things. I mean, we'd like it to be on a bigger school scale, but it hasn't gone. And uh, those are things that uh, are the hope for the future. There's a Canadian singer, uh, Leonard Cohen, poet, singer. I don't know if you know him or not. Uh, he has a song called Democracy is Coming to the USA. What will it take to make that happen? Same thing it's taken for hundreds of years. I mean, uh, you go back to the earliest uh, democratic revolution in the modern period, 17th century England, uh, 1640s, there was a civil war, you know, parliament against the king. But there were also, uh, the printing press was available at the time. There were uh, radical pamphleteers, uh, itinerant preachers, uh, movements, radical movements developing like the levelers and others. And uh, they were spreading their propaganda, their ideas to many people. And the gentry... Uh, the ones who called themselves the men of best quality, were appalled by this sight. They were appalled by pamphlets that, as they put it, said, uh, we don't want to be 
ruled by king or parliament. We don't want to be ruled by knights and gentlemen who do but oppress us, but to be governed by countrymen like ourselves who know the people's sores. That was appalling, and had to do something to stamp that out. Well, that's an effort to stamp out democracy, which is always a threat. Yes, go forward a century to the American Revolution, uh, so-called, uh, and uh, read um, the constitutional debates where James Madison and others are describing how they have to set up the constitutional system. I mean, the basic principle was the one that was enunciated simply by the president of the Constitutional Convention, uh, John Jay, first Supreme Court, just top justice of the Supreme Court. He said the country ought to be governed by those who own it. And that's the way the Constitution was set up. So, as Madison put it, wealth has, power has to be in the hands of the wealth of the nation, the more responsible set of men, the ones who sympathize with property owners, who understand that you have to protect the minority, the opulent, against the majority. Uh, uh, the rest have to be diffused and make sure they can't do very much and so on. That's the way the constitutional system was actually established, uh, quite apart from slavery and the limit exclusion of women and so on. The women were property, so they obviously didn't participate. Slaves, of course. That's 1780s. Ever since then, there's struggles about it. A lot has been gained, but every gain in freedom just uh, elicits a reaction from the men of best quality. You know, they don't give up power uh, happily, so they find other ways to try to control and dominate in the 20th century, it's uh, from the 20th century, it's been uh, substantially um, uh, control of opinion and attitudes. Huge industries like public relations industry are devoted to this. It's kind of interesting to see how little recognition there is of some very obvious facts about the public relations industry. I mean, its main concern is commercial advertising. What's commercial advertising? It's a means to undermine markets. Business doesn't want markets. Uh, markets are based on informed consumers making rational uh, choices. It's the last thing you want. So you take a look at a television ad, completely obvious that it's quite the opposite. It's trying to create an uninformed consumer who'll make a totally irrational choice. You know, buy a, a Ford motor, motor car because some football players standing next to it and it's flying up to the sky or something. So the whole purpose is to undermine markets. Same institutions run political campaigns and simply carry over the same ideas and techniques and so-called creativity to try to undermine democracy, to make sure that you have uninformed voters making irrational choices, like being excited by what the press admiringly calls Obama's soaring rhetoric, meaning meaningless talk, and, uh, you know, talk about hope and change and so on. Uh, uh, that's the idea. Make them uh, deluded, uninformed, uh, confused, so that you can get poll results like the ones I described. Now, you were just in Lebanon, uh, and 
the dangers of a wider war in the Middle East uh, seem to be increasing. Uh, the U.S. is now going to openly uh, arm the so-called uh, rebels in opposition uh, to the Assad uh, regime. Um, what did you learn on your trip? Well, it's it's quite interesting in Lebanon. You've been there. But uh, people have somehow developed defenses, psychological defenses, so that they go on living extremely placid lives as if they're not about to be consumed by a conflagration. And they are. Not, I can't even say it's on their borders. Uh, Lebanon has uh, over half a million Syrian refugees just penetrating the society. It's small country, four million people. It's got that's apart from the Palestinian refugees and Iraqi refugees that have been and uh, you know, they're under constant threat of, from Israel, which is kind of quietly pointing out that uh, they may decide to destroy all the missiles in Lebanon. They claim sixty thousand missiles scattered all over the country. And what they say is when we learned the lesson of the last invasion, we're not going to fight on the ground. We can't do that. Resistance is too strong. We'll just, 2006. Yeah, 2006. We'll just uh, get get it done in two days. Well, that can only mean bomb the country into rubble. That's what you're hearing from your friends right across the border who have the capacity to do plenty of damage. But people act as if none of it's happening. Life goes on, you know, a nice, pleasant events, discussions. Uh, the... Uh, on Obama's policies, I'm, I'm really not convinced that they're going to try to arm the rebels in any serious way. I mean, if the United States and Israel wanted to support the rebels, there are very simple ways of doing it, which don't involve sending arms, nothing like that. Simply induce Israel to mobilize forces on the Golan Heights, it's actually Syrian territory, but the United States calls it part of Israel, and the press calls it part of Israel. You know, so uh, mobilize forces there. It's forty miles from Damascus. Uh, you can march in in a day. It's in artillery range. Uh, Assad is compelled to send forces to the south. Can't really stop it, but at least just counter it somehow. That's happened in the past when Israel mobilized forces. It would happen now. That would relieve pressure from uh, the attacks on the rebels uh, without sending one pistol across the border. Have you heard a word about it? It's not even discussed. It's not even an option, which can only mean, and it's not that they can't figure it out. You know, They can figure it out more easily than I can. But uh, I think that means that they just don't want the Assad regime to collapse. Now, they're pretty happy, I think, the U.S. and Israel, with watching Arabs slaughter each other that's okay. Uh, deepening the uh, internal divide, the Shiite-Sunni divide, which is tearing the region apart and is one of the worst consequences of the Iraq crimes, the Iraq invasion, major crime. And one of the crimes is uh, inciting this uh, division, which is, as far as the U.S. and Israel is concerned, that's not too bad. Let the Arabs kill each other and undermine each other. Meanwhile, we were around to pick up the spoils. And the Assad regime has been more or less compatible with their interests. It cooperates in intelligence, uh, 
kept the border quiet, and maybe they don't love it, but um, I don't think they love the alternative either, which is probably going to be a jihadi-dominated group. Incidentally, I I did spend some time with uh, Syrian democracy activists, uh, really wonderful people, impressive people, and very frustrated with the fact that they get almost no support uh, from the West, including the Western left, which doesn't support them the way it's supported other uh, 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 why is that? Well, it's good. They, they want to know why. Um, I think there are many reasons, but one reason is that I think they are somewhat deluded about the objective situation in Syria. I mean, you and I know perfectly well that take the left, what's called the left here, is very divided on this. A lot of it thinks that uh, uh, any support, that the rebels are just trying to overthrow a legitimate government. Maybe not the greatest government in the world, but a legitimate government. Why should we support them? It's like uh, the Contras attacking the Sandinistas or something. That's a widespread attitude. And it's not, you know, you could argue about whether it's right or wrong, but it's certainly not without some elements of justification. There are, uh, you know, the, the rebels are not the democracy activists who I met. They think they are, but I think they're deluded. I mean, there's something about the dynamics of military. It certainly started that way. Like in the first couple of months of the uprising, it was a very uh, impressive, uh, uh, honorable, uh, uh, popular uprising calling for reforms. And they should have gotten support then, which they didn't get. Uh, but uh, we can ask why, but they didn't. And uh, But it soon turned into a military confrontation. And as soon as that happens... There's a dynamic that begins to develop. It's inevitable. You find it over and over. In a military confrontation, the harshest and most brutal elements come to the fore. They're the fighters. People, they like to kill. They know how to kill. You know, they're good at it. They come to the fore, and you get increasing brutalization. It happens all the time. I mean, in the Vietnam War, for example, the National Liberation Front, you know, not saints, but they were the more, uh, in my view at least, the more hopeful, uh, more progressive element in the whole confrontation. They were pretty soon marginalized, and they ended up with essentially no power. Uh, In fact, I wrote an article in 1969 or so, pointing out, it seemed to be pretty obvious at the time, that the outcome of the war would either be Total destru- you know, virtual total destruction of Indochina, which was happening, or else uh, only the more the harshest and more brutal elements would survive, and they would impose a pretty harsh regime. Well, pretty much what happened. Uh, but that's what you can expect when you get a military conflict, and I think we see it emerging in in Syria, which is part of the reason for the uh, lack of support. That's maybe not a justification, but it's part of the reason. Uh, there's just uh, a confusion about it. It's, compl- it's What you see is uh, uh, they think, that, I mean, the young democracy activists think that if the rebels get arms, what they think is if the rebels get, they're in favor of the ones I met at least, they're in favor of the U.S. sending arms to the rebels. They say that will equalize the military balance or at least make it more equal. Uh, drive Assad the negotiations, and uh, then uh, they'll be able to take over. But I think that's an illusion. First of all, it's not going to equalize the military balance. It'll just make it worse. 
as soon as you send some arms to the rebels, uh, still more arms and more advanced arms will come to the regime from Iran and Russia. In fact, it happened a couple of days after I was there. There was an announcement that Iran had sent 4,000 uh, 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 troops to uh, you know, Revolutionary Guards, I think, troops to support Assad. That's what's going to happen. So it'll, I think it'll just raise the military, it'll uh, raise the level of conflict higher with the same imbalance. And uh, uh, the only faint hope that I can see, and it's pretty faint, is something like a Geneva negotiation, uh, which actually the Russians have been pressing for some time and now Obama apparently supports, in which maybe an agreement could be made between Russia and the United States, essentially, to allow a transition government in which the Assad regime participates and maintains some degree of authority and uh, uh, try to work things out so that they'll be pressed to uh, uh, ab abandon political control and uh, move towards some other system. Uh, the probability of this is really not high, but if there's a better alternative, I don't see it. And as far as I know, not every commentator, but virtually all the uh, informed commentator sympathetic to the goals of the democracy activist says something like this, whether it's Patrick Coburn or John. Robert Fisk, Jonathan Steele, Charlie Glass, and others. I just don't see any other possibility. And Uh, viewed in the long-term, Israeli policy of um, occupation seems self-destructive, and even former Prime Minister uh, Olmert and former Shin, Shin Bet leaders have acknowledged pretty much that. So why does Israel keep pursuing its policies of occupation? Well, I, I would question the word acknowledge because I don't think it's true. Uh, what they're assuming is another delusion. It's kind of interesting. I don't know if they actually believe it. The way they're posing the situation, Olmert and the others, is that either we accept a two-state settlement or else there'll be one state, the US, Israel will take over the whole uh, region, the whole area, and uh, uh, we'll become a minority and you have the so-called demographic problem, you know, too many Palestinians in a Jewish state, and either we'll have to move to intolerable apartheid or else uh, we'll disappear. Those are the alternatives. The trouble is those aren't the alternatives. And I'm sure they know this. The alternatives, and a lot of the left believes this too. The debates. The U.S. left or the Israeli left? U U.S. not Israeli left is all non-existent. But the U.S. solidarity movements also pose the situation this way. And in fact, those who call for one state say, let Israel take everything over. Be great. Then we'll have an anti-apartheid struggle and, you know, like South Africa and so same illusion. Those are not the alternatives. The alternatives are either a two-state solution along the lines of the international consensus, or alternatively, Israel and the U.S. continue doing exactly what they're doing right now. And what they're doing, you can see, uh, the policy is very explicit. It's being implemented before your eyes. One, separate Gaza from the West Bank, that's in violation of the Oslo agreements, but who cares about that? Uh, that's crucial. 
because it means any form of limited autonomy in the West Bank will be cut off from the outside world. You can reach the outside world through Gaza. So if you separate the two illegally, then you've blocked that. Gaza stays in a state of siege, you know, harsh siege. As far as the West Bank is concerned, Israel takes over the Jordan Valley, which it in fact is doing. Population, Palestinian population is reduced from 300,000 at the time of the 67 war to about 60,000. So step by step, you know, every couple of days, kick out another village and uh, drill some more wells and so on. Do it quietly so the Goyim don't notice, or at least pretend not to notice. That goes back 100 years. Quietly create facts. So take over the Jordan Valley. That completely imprisons what's left. They don't even have access to Jordan, which is a U.S. client state. So, And, and then within the region that's left, uh, Israel will take over maybe 40% of it, uh, the areas inside the so-called separation wall, annexation wall, the greater Jerusalem, hugely expanded area called Jerusalem, a uh, couple of corridors extending to the east, uh, one east of greater Jerusalem uh, to, through Ma'ala al-Dumim, basically bisects the West Bank. That's a Clinton policy primary. It was started before Clinton, but it expanded greatly under Clinton. And then a northern uh, corridor which takes in the city of Ariel, another cuts off most of the rest, another one even farther north. Uh, uh, meanwhile, move, move the Palestinian populations out. Well, when all of this is integrated into Israel, there's not going to be any demographic problem. There are very few Arabs. No civil rights struggle, no anti-apartheid struggle, just uh, what you're left with is a couple of small cantons which can have, you know, they can deliver newspapers in the morning or maybe collect some taxes or something. But uh, also, uh, crucially, Israel has recognized, in fact, this 1990s, industrialists were already uh, proposing that Israel move from colonialism to neocolonialism, the way they described it. In neocolonial systems, you know, the post-colonial systems, uh, privileged elites have to be given a little piece of the action. So you go to the poorest, most repressed third world country, and there's a privileged elite living in amazing luxury, you know, uh, and do that too. So that's what's happening in Ramallah. It's a place, you know, kind of like Paris and London, live a nice life there for the elite. So let that go on. Uh, the Palestinian elites. Palestinian elites, yeah, that's what I mean. And uh, so that all kind of pacify them, and uh, the rest of the population let them run. Uh, that's the policy that's being carried out. That's the alternative to a two-state settlement. There is no alternative of one state. It's not an option. Now, whatever Olmert may say, he's smart enough to know that Israel's not going to do that for exactly the reasons he says, and they don't have to, because they can continue the current policy. So, in fact... Uh, hate to say it, but those who think they're helping the Palestinians by calling for one state are in fact in practice supporting the continuation of the current policies, which may lead to some form of Palestinian autonomy, but of an utterly fragmented, meaningless kind. Those are the alternatives, and that's what you got to face.
if you want. Talk about uh, Turkey briefly. I know you were there in January to give the Haran Dink lecture. And then um, in May and June, this uprising occurs over, ostensibly over a park near Taksim Square. But of course, under the surface, there are deep-rooted resentments against the Erdogan regime. What do you see happening there? Well, the I was there for the Haran Dink lecture, which is was quite interesting in itself. And Hrantink was assassinated, everyone assumes, by the government. And uh, there was a big backlash. It led to a substantial increase in interest and concern over the Armenian massacres and the suppression of them. But now there's a pretty substantial movement, popular movement, of developing understanding and information and doing something about it. So things have been rebuilt, and, and there was a huge demonstration which the police didn't try to stop, uh, march, demonstration in support of uh, uh, Hrantink and what he stood for. That was a couple of months ago. Uh, the Taksim Square was already simmering at the time. I was shown the signs of imminent confrontation. Broke out when uh, this is the last green open area in Istanbul. The rest has been hit by a wrecking ball, you know, commercialization, uh, gentrification, um, authoritarian control. That's been essentially wiping out the commons in uh, Istanbul. It's uh, destroying what, in fact, is an ancient treasure, ethnic neighborhoods, all sorts of things, historical monuments, and uh, taking away public space uh, in the interest of uh, the rich and commercial, the standard neoliberal programs. Well, Taksim Square was the last one, uh, uh, Gezi Park, uh, part of it. And uh, when the bulldozers came in, uh, there was a resistance. Popular movement occupied the square, so they were going to block the bulldozers. Uh, uh, we don't want our last uh, piece of the commons destroyed. And Erdogan's reaction was like Mubarak's in Egypt or Assad's in Syria, very violent. You send in the riot police and smash them to pieces. Then he kind of backed off a little, and it looked as though there was some negotiated for about a day. It seemed as if there was a kind of a negotiated settlement coming. Even the terms of it were announced. Uh, there is a court case underway about the legitimacy of this, so they'd wait for the outcome of the court, court case. If the court said that it's legitimate, that it's legal to proceed, there would then be a referendum in Istanbul, which is quite different from a referendum in the country. Istanbul has a different composition than the country with a rural conservative uh, majority. Uh, and that looked like a possible settlement, but within hours, he just sent the troops in to smash everything up. Uh, drive the demonstrators out. And now there's a real split in the country between a conservative Islamic element, largely rural but also business, and a secular, liberal, progressive uh, element which wants a more democratic and open society. And that's uh, split the country down the middle. And it's very... Uh, I mean, the, the Erdogan government has been becoming more repressive uh, it has more journalists in jail than any other country. 
and literally, and there's been increasing repression in many different ways, increasing kind of creeping Islamization, which a lot of people don't like. At first it looked like just opening the country up, but now it's clear that it's a lot different from that. And uh, uh, I think it's a kind of a standoff at the moment. What happens in Turkey is of enormous significance. For one thing, for Turkey itself, but Turkey's significance in the region is substantial, so it'll affect what's happening elsewhere. And my own view is there's a broader meaning to this. The human species at the moment is destroying the commons, common property, like the atmosphere. Nobody owns it. It's our common possession. The environment, you know, it's common possession. And we're destroying it. Uh, in the lead are the richest countries in the world with the greatest advantages, like the United States and Canada, happily destroying the commons. A uh, striking fact about contemporary period is that the ones who are trying to defend the commons are the indigenous populations, almost mostly. You know, they're in the forefront, the First Nations in Canada trying to block Tarzan's uh, uh, indigenous people in Bolivia, Ecuador, uh, Aboriginals in Australia, Adivasis in India, you know, uh, Campesinos in southern Colombia. I mean, they're trying to protect the commons, protect the future for all of us, all humans. They're trying to protect them. The richest and most powerful are trying to destroy the commons. And what you see in Taksim Square, I think, is a kind of a microcosm of this. It's the same wrecking ball, just on a massive scale. You say that cynicism, if you look at the current situation, the political uh, situation in the country and in the world, cynicism is justified, but it should not lead to passivity. If cynicism leads to passivity, we walk off the cliff. That's what it means. You can make your own subjective judgment about what the probability is of inhibiting destructive tendencies and uh, carrying forward uh, ones that are lead in a more positive path. But your subjective judgment doesn't mean anything. For one thing, we can't estimate the probability, never have been able to. Uh, for another, uh, the choices are very stark. Either you give up and help ensure that the worst happens, or you become engaged and maybe you'll make things better. Those are the choices. Always, always have been, still are. It's a little more of a, it's more of a serious decision right now. Uh, I don't know if you believe in kind of the Hindu-Buddhist notion of in, uh, reincarnation, but you have said uh, to me that uh, if you'd ever come back, uh, you would like, it would like to be in Edinburgh uh, during the Enlightenment. What attracts you about uh, that particular period? Well, the Scottish Enlightenment was a, a period of unusual. Uh, intellectual freedom, independence, uh, thoughtfulness, reflection, uh, uh, figures like uh, David Hume, uh, Adam Smith, uh, Francis Hutchinson, others. Uh, and I think that it's, uh, it happened to be in Edinburgh mostly. Uh, uh, I, I wouldn't romanticize it too much. I've read essays of Hume's, one of my favorite philosophers, which are pretty awful, like his, I mentioned to you, his essay on national character which is very racist, uh, rather favorable to Armenians. He, he says something like, uh, 
the Jews and their national character are known for, I think, fraud or something, and Armenians for probity. So that's why you brought it up. You wanted me to say that. Yeah. Okay. But uh, so there's this plenty wrong, but uh, by comparative standards, it's a pretty enlightened period, and might be nice to be part of it. And your views on reincarnation? I hope it isn't true. <laughs> if, if there is reincarnation, what we should hope for is to be reincarnated either as bacteria or as beetles, because they're the ones who are likely to survive what we're creating in the world. You end almost uh, all of your talks with a few words like, uh, it's hard work, uh, change never comes easy, people must uh, organize and make uh, efforts. But you, you don't go beyond that. And I know um, when you give lectures, as you did in Denver in um, early May, um, you, you, know, you talk for an hour and 15 minutes, and then right at the end there's this coda of about 60 seconds. you got to change it, you got to do it, and thank you very much, and it's over. And people are sometimes left uh, aghast. Yeah, tell us how to do it. Nobody can tell you how to do it. Nobody's ever been able to tell you in the past. I mean, you know, Saul Linsky can give you some tricks for organizing a community, but, uh, but that's not very much. Nothing you couldn't figure out for yourself in five minutes if you set yourself to it. Furthermore, nobody from the outside can tell you what to do because you are the one who knows the circumstances in which you live. You know what the options are. You know what can be done. You know who you are, what you're willing to undertake, uh, how much uh, commitment and engagement uh, you can uh, devote to this. Nobody can devote 100% of their time to uh, you know, political activism. So... You're the one who has to decide. There's just no way out of that dilemma. That was true at every point in the past, and it's still true. So I don't think you can expect to find uh, some savior coming from the outside and uh, telling you, here's what you ought to do in your circumstances, and depending on who you are, because nobody can do that. All right, two, two quick questions. You travel, you travel so much, and, and when you're at home, you work incessantly. Do you reflect on your remarkable journey and the roads taken or not taken? Not much. I mean, if I'm asked, I can think of things I should have done that I didn't do. But uh, go on. It's the normal way of life. Do you ever feel like uh, simply retiring and relaxing and leaving all these political headaches to others to worry about? Uh, It's going to happen pretty soon, whether I... Well, we're speaking uh, the day after the Super Bowl, the most watched event in U.S. Uh, culture. Um, do you know the, the, the 30-second ad, ad costs $4 million? So it's a huge bonanza uh, for the media, uh, you know, corporations. Well, actually, yeah. I, I almost never watch television, but I did watch about 10 minutes of the pregame show where they have these zillions of ads. And they're pretty interesting. They uh, illustrate very well, actually something that Bob McChesney wrote about very well, that as uh, corporations move, as the economy moves towards oligopoly, more concentration, uh, there's more 
concern to try to prevent price wars because that cuts into profit. So what you have to do is uh, compensate by uh, fraudulent product differentiation. That is, everyone produces the same products, but they have to make them, you have to sell them somehow as if they're different. So the normal function of advertising, which is to try to undermine markets, uh, to try to create uninformed consumers who make irrational choices, uh, that gets magnified. And when you just look at a couple, I just looked for a couple of minutes, but when you look at these ads, they are exercises in mass delusion of uh, with enormous effort going into trying to get people to be as uninformed as possible, as deluded as possible, so they'll pick this commodity which they don't want instead of that commodity which is identical to it that they don't want which is a kind of an interesting reflection of the way the society works. Well, I, I remember a scene in Manufacturing Consent where uh, you recall going to a sport, sporting event and, and watching the reaction of your classmates and people in the crowd, and you talked about uh, irrational obedience to authority. Well, it is a... It's an interesting phenomenon. I mean, it's easy to get caught up in it, and it can be quite innocent. So, you know, okay, we'll cheer for the home team or something. But uh, what's uh, what's a little frightening is the level to which people become dedicated to the uh, victory of their own gladiators and people they have nothing to do with. By now in the, the sports uh, domain. It's uh, become a kind of a, like when I was a kid, for example, uh, the same players played with the uh, New York Yankees uh, every year. So there was a kind of a fraudulent, but not totally ridiculous sense of identification with uh, Joe DiMaggio or you know, Lou Gehrig or something. But now it's just, it, it can be a player can be on a team, this team one year, opposite team the next year. You still have to cheer for your home team with uh, enormous enthusiasm. If they lose, you, you just go descend into misery. If they win, you're exalted. And uh, it, it has... Uh, Though it can be innocent pleasure, it's not impossible. It can also be pretty dangerous. You had a very interesting uh, event you've told me about when you were in the fourth grade uh, involving the New York Yankees and the Philadelphia Athletics and uh, a baseball game that you went to with a certain teacher. Miss mm -hmm. Clark. She... Uh, Every boy in the fourth grade class was in love with Miss Clark. And she took me and my best friend to a baseball game, which was an unheard of pleasure. It was a Yankees athletics game. I can, if you want to be bored, I'll give you an inning by inning account of it. But anyway, we sat in the cheapest seats in the bleachers right behind Joe DiMaggio. Of course, we wanted the Yankees to lose because we were Philadelphia. But uh, nevertheless, there were all these heroes out there, you know, Lou Gehrig, Bill Dickey, Red Ruffing, you know, and so on. And the A's weren't up to that level, but there were a couple of quasi-heroes. And uh, then, so we were just ecstatic, except uh, a couple of months later, she betrayed us. 
she married the art teacher, Mr. Fink. Never got over that. <laughs> You're still recovering. Yes. <laughs> well, there was an, well, an interesting outcome to the game as well, where the home team, your team, the Philadelphia Athletics, were way ahead, were ahead of the yeah, Yankees. We were winning 7-3 to three until the seventh inning when the Yankees scored seven runs and won 10-7. But kids of my age, boys, of, not girls, boys of my age who lived in Philadelphia, uh, all, we, all have a kind of an inferiority complex because the Philadelphia teams were always, they lost in every sport. They were way at the bottom of the league. But to make it worse, our cousins were all in New York and they were at the top of the league in every sport. So we had to survive this... Uh, uh, interaction with these uh, cousins who were lording it over us because they won everything and we lost everything. I want to go stay kind of in your childhood. Uh, in the third grade, um, you uh, had an incident where you copied uh, something from the Encyclopedia Britannica. Do you remember the details of that? Yeah, but how do you know all these terrible things about me? Yeah, that was one of my... Real crimes. I, we had an assignment to try to write something about astronomy, and uh, I don't know why, but I, I had a copy of the Britannica, and I copied a section out of it and handed it in. And I, I, funny, I didn't think anything wrong about it at the time, but as soon as I thought about it, I thought I felt really very bad. I, I never was censured. I mean, the teacher must have known. I, I couldn't have written it, you know, but I never heard anything about it. And I've been trying to live that down all my life. It's almost as bad as the A's being defeated by the Yankees <laughs> or Miss Clark betraying us. <laughs> and then to go back to what might be your first act of rebellion, uh, refusing to eat oatmeal. How, how old were you and uh, what were the circumstances? Well, that I can date because I know where it was. Uh, I was a year and a half old, my uh, my re uh, relatives were mostly unemployed working class, and my parents were teachers, so they had you know, an income. So their relatives tended to congregate around our house, especially over the summer. And uh, one of my maiden aunts was trying to feed me oatmeal. I was sitting on a counter and, uh, like this, and she was forcing oatmeal into my mouth, and I didn't want to eat it. So I put it in my cheek, and I just kept it in my cheek and refused to swallow it. I don't know how long that went on, but I remember her trying really hard to, get me to swallow that oatmeal. Yeah. And you haven't looked back since? Yeah. <laughs> it's still there. <laughs> <laughs> now, from a, a very early age, you were attracted to anarchism. Uh, what was it, or what is it about anarchism that appealed to you? Well, just anarchism seems to be kind of like truism. I mean, why should illegitimate structures of authority exist? Uh, if there is any kind of structure of authority or hierarchy or domination, it really has a burden of proof that has to demonstrate that it's legitimate. Sometimes maybe it can't. If it can't, it should be dismantled. Now, that seems to be about as close to truism as I can imagine. And that's the dominant theme of what's called anarchism. Uh, seek uh, structures of power and domination, whether it's a, 
patriarchal family uh, or an imperial system or anything in between and uh, uh, demand that it justify itself. And when it can't, which is almost always, uh, move to dismantle it in favor of a more free and uh, um, cooperative and participatory uh, system. I... It, it just seems in, intuitively obvious. I don't think the question ever arose, why believe this? As soon as you think about it, it's obvious. And you discovered these books at uh, rummaging through Fourth Avenue bookstores in New York? Well, by the time I was about 11 or 12, and my parents would let me go to New York by myself. There was a train that I could take and I could stay with relatives. Uh, I'd go on weekends or whenever I could get off. And uh, in those days, it's very different now, but Union Square was kind of grubby. And there were, among other things, there were little anarchist offices there, like Freie Arbeiterstimme, the Yiddish anarchist office was there, and I'd hang around there, and they'd have pamphlets, and people are, people are happy to talk to you. You know, here's a kid who's interested, really interested. And then uh, down on 4th Avenue right below Union Square, which was also pretty grubby then. Now it's very elegant. Uh, there were rows of little stores. A lot of them were bookstores, secondhand bookstores. Some of them, a lot of them were run by emigres, and a number were uh, Spanish uh, refugees from the Spanish Civil War. And among them were uh, uh, anarchists who fled uh, after the anarchist revolution was crushed in 1936. And uh, they were interesting. To me, they looked about 100 years old, you know, probably 30 or something. But uh, they um, they had um, interesting experiences. They were also eager to talk. And uh, a lot of pamphlets, uh, pamphlet literature, other things, which I, to the extent that I, they were, it was pretty cheap. I didn't have much money, but it was cheap enough to buy, and I collected a lot of them. And I, I just uh, got interested and learned about it. And there, there were things that, that were discovered even by the, uh, the normal kind of left press. It was remember this is the thirties and the early forties, very lively period of uh, radical journalism and uh, all kinds of radical discussion and so on. There were a lot of uh, actually the Philadelphia Public Library downtown, you know, big library had a really good collection of uh, radical publications. Uh, uh, the ones. One of the um, anarchist thinkers who influenced you was um, Rudolf Rocker. Uh, he was born in 1873 in Germany, and he died, I just learned, in upstate New York um, in 1958. I was wondering, did you ever meet him? Never met him. His, when I was a kid back in those you know, second-hand bookstore days, I, I did find a couple of pamphlets by him, but uh, his main books I only found later, probably in the late 40s, when I was, at, uh, or maybe even 1950, roughly around then, I think they were then maybe reissued by some anarchist press, and I was able to read uh, his Anarcho-Syndicalism and his main book on nationalism, which uh, the Anarcho-Syndicalism was actually written, I think, in 37, but I don't think it was really available till maybe 10, 15 years later. And uh, yes, I was very much interested in that. I thought it was very, very 
very insightful work. He says... He was also pretty sympathetic. He was quite sympathetic to the Spanish Revolution. The, by the Revolution, I mean what was 1936-37. It was, it was pretty much ended on by mid-37 under the, as I said, the combined assault of just about everyone. Uh, Rocker uh, wrote that uh, political rights do not originate in parliaments. They are rather forced upon parliaments from without. It's from below, in fact. Yeah, that's, I think, an accurate uh, comment. Power systems do not give gifts willingly. I mean, you'll occasionally in history find a benevolent dictator or a slave owner who decides to free his slaves, but these are kind of statistical error. Uh, typically, systems of power will try to consolidate and sustain and expand their power. Uh, that's true of parliaments, too, and it's uh, uh, popular activism that uh, compels changes. In Notes on Anarchism, which you wrote in the early 70s, uh, you favorably quote uh, Rocker, and um, you say that the problem of, and here, 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 this is Rocker's quote, freeing man from the curse of economic exploitation and political and social enslavement remains the problem of our time. Very much so, and still does. Well, there, we can add to that uh, an observation that's typical of the anarchist tradition and also was made by Marx that... Uh, Overcoming these problems will eliminate what Marx called uh, uh, a man's animal problems, but will still leave untouched his human problems. That's, it'll free us to be, to be able to face our human problems if we can overcome the animal problems of survival, exploitation, uh, uh, oppression, and so on. In, a, in another eth essay that you wrote, um, Language and Freedom, also from that period of, of the um, early 70s, uh, you wrote about predatory capitalism uh, as it's not a fit system, it is incapable of meeting human needs, uh, and then you uh, described the militarized state capitalism. What is, what is it about this behemoth that allows it to keep going forward? What sustains it? Well... What sustains it is uh, two things. First, the natural effort of those with enormous power to uh, secure and maximize their power. That's one natural tendency. The other is the uh, passivity or hopelessness or atomization of uh, uh, that those forces from below that Rocker was talking about, which could make a change. And uh, that was 1970, which happened to be at the beginning of a major backlash against the liberatory character of the 1960s, which scared power systems, really terrified them. And there came a huge backlash, uh, which we're still in the middle of. Well, that's the beginning of the neoliberal assault on the population of the world, which has been very harmful. By now, incidentally, it's not militarized state cap. I mean, there were things I didn't know at the time, which everyone ought to know now, 
uh, this was at a time when it was the bare beginnings of recognition that there are uh, significant problems having to do with the climate. In fact, I remember in the early 70s when two friends of mine, close friends, one happened to be the head of uh, uh, earth sciences at Harvard, and the other the head of meteorology at MIT, uh, both uh, came along with uh, pretty gloomy looks, uh, reporting that new information that was just beginning to leak out indicated that we would we might be facing a severe uh, environmental crisis. And then, of course, by now, it should be you know, at the top of everyone's consciousness. This predatory system is by its intrinsic nature almost driving us over a cliff. In fact, if you look at it, it's, uh, it's it's astonishing to watch. I mean, you every you know every every issue of a science journal that you read has more alarming discoveries about the, uh, the threat that we're facing and the imminence of it. I mean, it's not hundreds of years; it's uh, decades, maybe. The latest IPCC report, uh, and they're pretty conservative, says maybe 15 years in which we can uh, try to do something serious about it, or after that we might the system might be running out of control. And right in the middle of this, uh, what predatory capitalism is telling us is we have to maximize the threat. We have to extract every drop of fossil fuel out of the ground by whatever destructive uh, policies there are, uh, the excuse is uh, this is good for jobs. But you have to remember that in modern political discourse, the word jobs uh, is a term that replaces an unpronounceable, obscene seven-letter phrase. Uh, I can't pronounce it. It'll be cut off, but I can spell it. P-R-O-F-I-T-S. You can't say that, so it's called jobs. Uh, so we have to make sure we get jobs, you know, because that's because they care so much about working people, as you can tell. Uh, so therefore, we have to race off the cliff like the proverbial lemmings. Uh, in fact, it's uh, uh, and it's, it's uh, we're really facing uh, the opportunity to uh, destroy the possibilities for um, decent human existence. I mean, it's been true since the atom bomb. That's a dark shadow. It's still there, very serious. But uh, this, in that case, at least, we we know in principle how to overcome the threat. Not being done, but you know how to do it. In this case, it's not so obvious that we even know how. And the more you wait, the longer it gets. But these are just almost institutional necessities. Now, that's why... Uh, quite open, quite publicly, you know, not a secret. The major sectors of the corporate system, um, you know, Chamber of Commerce, uh, energy corporations, and so on, announce openly that they are carrying out massive propaganda to try to convince people uh, either that there's no climate change happening or that if there is, it's not anthropogenic. It's not because of humans. It's because of, you know, sunspots or something. Uh, and they say so. Oh, you don't have to dig to find it out. And it has some effect. It's, um, I mean, uh, the population in the United States is not that far off the international norm in concern for these issues. 
lower, but not far. On the other hand, uh, uh, the efforts to try to drive people to complete irrationality and dedication to self-destruction are enormous and growing. I mean, some of them are almost surreal. Uh, so for one example I've mentioned a couple of times is uh, ALEC, the American Legislative Exchange Council, a corporate-backed group that uh, uh, writes uh, uh, a legislation for states. They figure it's easier to coerce states than the federal government. So try to drive through states extremely reactionary legislation um, in favor of jobs, namely that unpronounceable word. Uh, one of their programs is uh, to try to, um, uh, uh, what they, they say is to try to bring uh, critical thinking to the schools, K-12, to who can be against that. So how do you bring critical thinking to the schools? Well, if there's a sixth grade class that has something about the climate, you should also introduce into the curriculum something about climate change denial to the sixth graders. So then they'll learn to think critically, you know, to evaluate uh, the opinion of 99% of scientists on the one hand versus uh, you know, a half a dozen skeptics and uh, the major corporations on the other hand. That'll teach critical thinking. Um, the efforts to, that go into trying to ensure self-destruction of the species are pretty impressive. Uh, if there was somebody from outer space watching this, they could only conclude that this is an absolutely unviable species. It's an evolutionary error. It's tending towards self-destruction. And what makes it even more dramatic is that there are, of course, elements in the world that are trying to prevent it. Overwhelmingly, it's the so-called backward people, what we call pre-technological, primitive you know, the people we ridicule because of their primitive nature. All over the world, First Nations in Canada, indigenous people in Latin America, I mean, aboriginals in Australia, the Adivasis in India, you know, everywhere you look around the world, the pre-technological societies are trying to do something to prevent us from destroying ourselves. And the most advanced, uh, richest privileged sectors in the world, primarily the U.S. and even worse, Canada, which is now even worse than the United States. It's shifted a lot. Uh, they're trying to destroy us. And it's uh, here it is right in front of our eyes. Uh, uh, so like right now, it's uh, the XL uh, Keystone Pipeline. So yes, uh, tar sands are much worse than anything else. We agree on that. But we've got we to gotta use them because we have to make sure we destroy ourselves as quickly. Well then, is the economic system incapable of preserving and protecting the environment? And uh, let me just say, uh, ALEC is largely funded by the billionaire Koch brothers. Yes. Uh, the economic system has deep institutional properties which drive everything towards destruction. Uh, so, for example, uh, and it's even part of economic theory, 
So to the ex- I mean, we don't really have market systems, but to the extent, because there's a heavy reliance on the state and so on, but there's an element of market systems. And in a market system, uh, you do not pay attention to what are called externalities. So if, if you and I make a transaction, let's say you sell me something, uh, if we're paying attention, we uh, ask, we try to maximize our own benefit. That's the way the system's supposed to work. We don't ask what's the effect on him. Uh, there often is an effect on other people. So it's like if I buy a car, I'm increasing pollution, uh, chance of accidents, uh, other things that extends over the whole population. And uh, sometimes this is serious, like take uh, Goldman Sachs. When they make a risky uh, transaction of some kind, they probably try to cover themselves for the risk, but they don't pay attention to what's called systemic risk. That is the threat that if their transaction goes bad, the whole system will collapse, like with what happened with AIG, for example. And in a way, they don't have to worry because the government's going to move in to bail them out, so it's fine. But uh, that means that risk is underpriced because you're not paying attention to externalities. So you're doing more of it than you should in an efficient system, and that can be devastating. That's part of the reason for the current financial crisis. But there's another case that's much worse, the environmental crisis. Uh, For, say, Koch brothers or even those less kind of out on the edge than they are, uh, the need to make profit is what you're dedicated to. That's the nature of the system. You're, you're a CEO or board of directors. You're supposed to make profit for yourself and sometimes for the company, but profit at least. And you don't pay attention to the costs to others. Well, one of these costs may be destroying the species. It's an externality. So therefore, it's a footnote. And that's part of the nature of the system. Of course, in this case, there's nobody to run to with your cap in hand to ask to be bailed out. You can, in the case of a financial crisis, the taxpayer will be bamboozled into bailing you out, but not not with environmental crisis. So it's kind of built in. Uh, Is it changeable? Sure, because the economic system is not uh, a law of nature. These are more illegitimate structures, back to what we were talking about before. Uh, illegitimate structures of authority have no right to exist. Uh, and uh, But uh, if they do exist, yes, they're going to have these properties. Well, given the severity and the urgency of the environmental crises, I'll use that in the plural, where do you see the clamor for change? There is clamor. I mean, there are protests at the White House. There's protests of the pipeline. There's... Uh, a lot of resistance, a lot of um, local resistance to uh, the huge expansion of pipeline networks over the country, actually. But it's so far not at a scale that can compete with the uh, vast uh, economic uh, resources and influence over government that you have in the hands of the major energy corporations. Uh, That's why if if you look at discussion in the newspapers, again, this extraterrestrial observer would think we're insane. I mean, the discussion, I mean, first of all, it's presented as a kind of he says, she says thing. So, you know, maybe there, maybe it's happening, maybe it isn't. 
Uh, I mean, you you can't be certain in the sciences, but this is about as close to overwhelming consensus as anything imaginable in a complex area. I think the IPCC report you referred to used the figure 95% uh, certainty. Yeah, and if you look at the support for it, it's overwhelming, but there are critics. And in fact, there are a few critics who get plenty of publicity. They raise questions about whether there is methodology and so on. But there's a much more significant group of critics who almost never get mentioned. They're the ones who think the IPCC reports are much too conservative. And that, uh, remember, uncertainty means it might be not as bad or it might be worse. The way it's presented is uncertainty is supposed to mean, well, maybe it's not as bad. But if you go to the climate scientists, say, here at MIT, they think it's too conservative. And uh, plenty of other places, Michael Mann, others. Uh, So... uh, uh, there isn't a hundred percent consensus, but um, a large part of the l- lack of agreement is saying you guys are too conservative. It's much worse than you think, and they've been regularly shown to be correct as uh, more and more studies come out with more and more ominous predictions. But it's kind of as if this doesn't matter. We'll float above it. Uh, okay, so uh, we'll destroy the lives of our grandchildren, but who cares if we can have. Uh, more profit today, or maybe more uh, uh, gimmicks today. And there are things that can be done. I mean, some of the things that can be done are uh, almost elementary. Uh, like, uh, I take things like weatherization, you know, reconstructing homes to be energy efficient. Now, that would delay the threat. It's important to delay the threat, then maybe something will be done. Not only would delay the threat, it would help overcome the unemployment crisis. Uh, which is serious. You know, there's tens of millions of people who can't get work. Their lives are being destroyed. Their children's lives are being destroyed. Now, things like projects like that, of which there are innumerable ones, uh, can deal with the economic, with a serious economic crisis, and also take steps towards ameliorating or at least delaying the threat that hangs over us. But almost nothing's being done. Uh, the, uh, you know, this. Uh, great enthusiasm about uh, the United States becoming the Saudi Arabia of the uh, 21st century. We'll have uh, huge oil uh, energy resources, naturally. Yeah, it's true, but what is going to happen at the end of the century? In fact, just a couple of weeks ago, there was a lot of crowing in the press because the Europeans who have been trying to do something not insignificant about climate change have, have backed off and that shows, ha, 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 they're backing off. See, what? why were they backing off? Because they can't compete with the low energy prices in the United States. As we race towards self-destruction, we're getting cheaper energy. And the Europeans can't compete with it, so therefore they're compelled to back off from their efforts to ameliorate the crisis. And there's many other cases, like take, say, Ecuador, poor country, poor third world country, has a lot of fair amount of oil. Uh, they made an offer uh, to keep the oil in the ground. It's uh, tens of billions of dollars that they're willing to give up for a pittance, a couple of billion dollars, I think maybe 10% of the loss that they're taking, asking the rich countries 
array of rich countries to provide just a few billion dollars, a small percentage of what they're losing, to uh, enable them to keep the oil in the ground, which not only which is where it ought to be, but it also means preserving uh, ecologically uh, threatened, rich ecologically threatened areas. They couldn't get the money. The rich countries won't do it. A couple of questions about uh, the economic system. Um, one, why are there so many poor people in the United States? And two, there's discussion, and, and of course, 2014 marks the 50th anniversary of the war on poverty. And uh, the second part of that is about income inequality and what Barbara Ehrenreich calls kicking people when they're down, uh, reducing food stamps, cutting off unemployment uh, benefits. Why is there this almost seemingly sadistic aspect to this? Where's the compassion? Going back to the war on poverty, it was successful. It was not very great, you know, but it was successful uh, uh, and did uh, cut back poverty, poverty notably. But then as soon as the neoliberal onslaught started, it reversed. And certainly that's not just the United States, that's the world. The whole world was subjected to this in different forms. Uh, and sometimes, in some place, I mean, it's what's happening in Europe right now. It's even more extreme than the United States. Uh, the policies of uh, uh, trying to impose uh, austerity during recession, uh, which even the IMF says uh, are economically unacceptable, uh, they have the very s specific effect of dismantling the welfare state, Europe's great achievement in the post-war period. Uh, the business world and the wealthy don't like it, never have, and this gives them an opportunity to dismantle it. That's almost said almost openly. And, uh, but just returning to the U.S. now, why the, why the attacks on food stamps and cutting unemployment benefits? Not just that. Why the attack on Social Security? And why the attack on public schools? Uh, anything that might benefit the general population has to be cut because the goal of society must be to enrich and empower the rich and powerful. Period. It, it all has a common theme, you know, all of these, uh, uh, what you call sadism, I think is really something a little different. It's trying to undermine the uh, heretical, subversive conception that you ought to care about other people. You've got to get rid of that. You shouldn't care about anyone else. You should just care about yourself or the powerful who you're serving. So therefore, schools, Social Security, food stamps, all of these things are really subversive. Uh, say schools. I mean, why should I pay taxes for schools? I don't have kids in school. So why should I pay taxes just so the kid across the street can go to school? Uh, what's called libertarian in the United States, which is the most extreme anti-libertarian force that probably has ever existed, but it's called libertarian. That's their doctrine. Why should I pay for something that I don't benefit from? So why should there be schools? Why should there be roads? You know, why should there be Social Security? Why should there be food stamps? Those, those guys should get out and work like I do, even though I'm getting, say, maybe my, all my profits from the taxpayer via the financial system. Uh, that's uh, 
these doctrines all are of a piece. It's kind of striking that they're exactly the opposite of their heroes, like Adam Smith or David Hume, or, you know, the founders of classical liberalism, who took it for granted that the fundamental human drive was sympathy and mutual support. Uh, what's called libertarianism today is the exact opposite. We've got to get rid of these, these subversive ideas. And what you're talking about, like the food stamps and so on, is just a part of it. Actually, a much more uh, a dramatic part, I think, is the schools. Now, the effort to undermine public education is quite striking. I mean, that was, after all, one of the real achievements of American society, mass public education, but it's subversive because it is based on this conception that you should care about other people. And that's a dangerous conception if the only driving force in life is profit for the powerful. Well, believe it or not, this year marks the 30th anniversary of our very first interview. Um, the topic was politics and language, and um, I, I dare say you probably don't remember in detail what we um, talked about, but it was significant for me because I had a tremendous uh, technical failure at the very beginning, and I said, oh, we can't do the interview, Noam. I was sitting in Boulder at KGNU Studios, and you were at home in Lexington, and you very kindly uh, said, well, when you get it fixed, call me back. And uh, I did. did and yeah, we got it. We got this tech problem uh, solved. And I, I guess you must hold the world record for being interviewed. Uh, I don't know what the world record is, but it's pretty intense. So much so I have to cut it back. I just can't. It's impossible to keep up. I mean, every night I get a dozen requests. And when you do all these interviews, I mean, is there anything you're looking for or something that you want to inject that perhaps is in the conversation that's not happening? Well, the interviews come from a wide variety of sources. And uh, what I try to do, however, successfully, that's for others to judge, is to see if I can identify assumptions that are taken for granted, but that are very questionable and ought to be. You once said that uh, Amos was your favorite prophet. What is it about uh, Amos that uh, attracts you? Uh, what attracted me particularly about him from childhood is that he was openly he openly identified himself. Uh, the word prophet, first of all, means kind of pretty much what we mean by intellectual. That doesn't have anything to do with prophecy. And he opens by saying that I am not a prophet and my father is not a prophet. I'm a simple shepherd and, uh, you know, farmer. And uh, then he goes on to say some very profound things. I like that. And I think is the word in Hebrew is Navi? Navi, which nobody knows what it means, but it's translated as prophet, but it's a very dubious translation of an obscure word. I mean, they didn't prophesy. They were, uh, they were pretty much what we would call intellectuals. They did uh, geopolitical analysis. They uh, uh, condemned uh, the evil kings, the power structures. They called for... Uh, uh, 
care for the oppressed, uh, and mercy for widows and orphans, uh, what we would call a dissident intellectual. And they were treated like dissident intellectuals. Uh, they were you know, driven into the desert, uh, imprisoned, uh, condemned. Uh, one of my favorites was Elijah. He was, he's the original uh, Jewish uh, so, uh, person guilty of Jewish self-hatred. He was uh, called by King Ahab. You know, Ahab is the epitome of evil in the Bible. And uh, Ahab called Elijah to him and asked him, uh, the right translation would be, why are you a hater of Israel? Uh, a hater of Israel means he condemned the king. And uh, it's the kind of origin of concepts like anti-American and uh, uh, anti-Soviet and uh, uh, Jewish self-hatred and so on. If you... Uh, uh, if you're a real deeply totalitarian, uh, you identify uh, the rulers with the society and the culture and the people. So if you condemn the rulers, you're against the society. And the term self-hating Jew, of, of course, has been applied to you on occasion. I'm happy to be associated with Elijah, the opposed to the most evil king in the Bible, you know. In 1953, you and your wife, Carol, were living on a kibbutz um, in Israel. Uh, talk about that experience, and uh, you were also considering even living in the country for a while, but what happened to change your mind? Uh, we were there uh, just for a couple of months in 53. It was a summer, you know, students, so we took off for the summer. But, uh, uh, yeah, we were thinking about it. Carol went back herself. I had... I was just appointed here, so she went back by herself and stayed for a longer period. And she came back to the United States assuming that we would go back and stay. And we thought about it, but we just uh, didn't, you know, settle. And uh, it, it wouldn't have worked for very long, I don't think. I mean, at that time, we were in a very left-wing kibbutz, uh, which was the sort of um, center of uh, outreach to the uh, Arab community and within the left part of the kibbutz movement. And I, you know, a lot of things I liked about it. There were other things I didn't. But it, over the years, it changed a lot. It's not very reactionary. I could, couldn't have possibly stayed. And I remember you telling me you, there were, you know, traces of racism that were very there. Strong. Yeah. Yeah. Just to give you an illustration, uh, there, there was a group of young Moroccans kids, who I later discovered were pretty much kidnapped from their parents. And we lived among them. It was very poor then. We lived basically in a packing case. And we were warned by the kibbutz people, you got to lock your door and watch out for them. They're a bunch of criminals. And so eh, perfectly nice kids, you know, nothing. Once I was working out in the fields, you know, picking grapes or something, and the, there was a kind of an altercation often nearby among teenage kids uh, and the the woman who was in charge of the agricultural section walked over to find out what was going on and sort of calm it down and when she came back I, I asked her what had happened and she said well the kibbutz kids were uh, picking on bullying these other kids who they thought were Moroccan Jews 
But I had to tell them they weren't Moroccan Jews. They were Arabs who were visiting, and we had to be nice to them. If they'd been the Moroccan kids, it would have been all right. You know, there was a lot of things like that. I went around with the, the uh, person on the kibbutz who was a friend who was in charge of going around to Arab villages. He was also the editor of the Arab newspaper. He was kind of like a ward healer. You know, he'd go around to the Arab villages to try to get votes for Mapam, their party. And I went with him, and at that time I understood enough spoken Arabic to be able to kind of follow the conversations at least. One village, I remember, uh, across the street from them, there was a road. Across the road, there was a kibbutz, which they were sort of friendly with. They wanted to have commercial other interactions with, but they couldn't cross the road unless they went to Haifa, which was on maybe 20 miles away, and got a permit to cross the road, and then maybe they'd be allowed to cross the road to talk to people on the other side. I think it was under military administration. The kibbutzmers didn't really object to that. They, uh, though in some respects they did. I was working out in the fields one day with some guy, older member of the kibbutz, and I noticed a pile of stones, and I asked him what it was, and he didn't say anything. I just put it off. But later, in the back in the kibbutz, he took me aside and said that uh, it was actually a friendly Arab village which they had destroyed in 1948. You know, he was felt guilty about destroying the village, but he said there were Arab tanks a couple of miles away, and we just didn't want to take chances. In an interview we did in um, late June 2013, you said the Israeli left is almost non-existent. Um, explain that, because in some quarters, in the U.S. at least, uh, there was a perception for years that there was a very vibrant left in, in Israel. What's happened there? Uh, there was a vibrant left that's uh, seriously declined. There are few people, very good people, uh, very honorable, courageous people, but it's, uh, it's a scattering. Uh, so one of the best, uh, Amira Haas, for example, wonderful journalist, uh, lives in Ramallah, she doesn't want to live in Israel anymore. Uh, a number of them have, quite a few have left. Uh, friend, close friends of mine have, who really committed to Israel, you know, that's their life. They were born there, they wanted to stay there, they just left, couldn't stand it anymore. I mean, the country's moved very far to the right. In fact, what's happening in Israel is quite similar to what happened in South Africa. You can read the history from about, say, 1960 to the present, and practically replace South Africa by Israel, and it almost describes what's happening. Uh, the uh, back in around 1960, we know from declassified documents, uh, the South African uh, uh, foreign minister called in the American ambassador and told him, "Look, we know uh, apartheid is being condemned around much of the world. We're." becoming a kind of a pariah country. People don't understand that. Of course, we're right, but they don't understand us. And uh, we're being voted down in the United Nations and so on. But he said it really doesn't matter because there's only one vote that counts. You and I know that, your vote. As long as you support us, it doesn't matter what the rest of the world thinks. And then it goes on 
another by the 1960s there was an anti-apartheid movement in England a significant one uh, by the 1970s uh, the UN was beginning to pass uh, condemnations of South Africa uh, South Africans were uh, they, they they were trying to create a, a, a supportive regimes uh, you know client regimes in the surrounding black Africa. They were carrying out murderous aggression in Angola. They were illegally occupying Namibia. They were carrying out atrocities in Mozambique, kind of trying to impose, just to intimidate and impose their own rule around South Africa. Uh, They couldn't get away with it. And the reason is something that you don't talk about in the United States because of Cuba. Uh, If you remember when Mandela was released from prison, uh, his, almost his first words were to praise and thank the Castro and the Cubans for their uh, being an inspiration for them and, the, uh, and their enormous role in ending, in liberating Africa and ending apartheid, which is what happened. Uh, the Cubans uh, drove the South Africans out of Angola. Uh, they compelled them to leave Namibia, which was illegally occupied, they, uh, the Cuban the Cubans were there with black soldiers, and they were defeating the uh, South African army, driving them out. And that had a big Mandela pointed this out. It had a, a very important psychological effect, both in black and white Africa, because there was this image of the invincible white, you know, man and so on, and uh, and just uh, just they just drove them out and defended the countries. Meanwhile, the United States was supporting the apartheid regime. Reagan, in particular, who was an extreme racist, he refused to believe that there was any race issue in South Africa. His view was it's just tribal warfare. You know, there's the Zulus, the whites, uh, others, they're kind of engaged in some kind of tribal warfare. Uh, Reagan, along with Thatcher, she was less, you know, less fanatic than he was, but... uh, uh, they were the supporters of apartheid right to the end. In fact, they were supporting uh, terrorist groups in Angola, uh, UNITA, which was just a terrorist gang, uh, even after the South Africans pulled down. They were becoming delegitimized, uh, and you know, there were boycotts and... Uh, Sanctions and the Congress even passed sanctions, which uh, Reagan had to veto. And, and I'm sure you know, and the ANC, African National Congress, was uh, condemned in 1988, almost the end of apartheid, was condemned by the United States as uh, one of the more notorious terrorist groups in the world. And that was shortly before Mandela was finally released. In fact, Mandela himself was on the terrorist list until five years ago. They had to have a special act of legislation in Congress to get him off the terrorist list. But uh, this, if you think this through, it's pretty similar to the what's been going on in Israel. Yet by the early, it's a little later there, but by the early 70s, uh, they recognized, they had to make a decision, a very, very striking decision in 1971, in fact. They were offered a full peace treaty by e- Egypt. Sadat. Sadat. Um, basically a full peace treaty, normalization, everything, if they would pull out of um, the Egyptian Sinai. And um, they considered it and rejected it. They were settling the Sinai, had 
big programs to settle and develop the Egyptian Sinai at the time, drive out the Bedouin population, build all Jewish cities, and kibbutzim, and so on. And they made a decision to prefer expansion to security. A peace treaty with Egypt would mean basically complete security. It's the only military force in the Arab world. Uh, that was a fateful decision. And since then, we can run through the history, it's been the same. And the more you pursue expansion and reject diplomacy, the more you're going to become isolated. And the last resort is the United States. And they're essentially taking the position that South Africa did. We don't care about the world. We're right. The world is wrong. One thing you've always said is that the people who are, say they're supporters of Israel uh, are actually contributing to its uh, destruction. I've been saying that since the 70s, yeah. when they made these decisions to support expansion uh, rather than security and diplomacy, now they're deeply concerned about what they call delegitimization. Uh, just this morning, in fact, you may have seen that uh, Netanyahu uh, harshly condemned Kerry because Kerry had referred to the fact that uh, Europeans are beginning to boycott activities involving the illegal settlements. And even to refer to that fact is, you know, anti-Semitic. Uh, that's pretty similar to what you got in the uh, racist South African uh, elements as the whole world closed in on them. There are movements uh, led by Code Pink in this country against uh, Israeli products that are made um, in, in, the in the occupied settlement, West Bank. Yeah. Here there's some, much more so in Europe. Uh, one of the big, uh, one of the major Danish banks just... Uh, Council that's dealing with one of the major Israeli banks, Banca Polim, because of their activities in the settlements. And the European Union has passed resolutions, I don't know if they're going to implement them, uh, refusing contact with any Israeli institutions that are involved in the settlements, research and other things. Uh, and it's expanding here to an certain extent, too. Well, again, for lack of a better term, uh, supporters of Israel or those who are pro-Israel, say the country is overly scrutinized, that it is singled out, there are double standards uh, and the like. Do you give any credence to those views? That's the same as what supporters of apartheid said. I mean, why condemn apartheid? Look how awful uh, China is, you know. In fact, if you went to the old Soviet Union, uh, you found similar criticisms of dissidents. Why are you condemning what we do in Czechoslovakia? Look at what the Americans do in Central Central America, which is much worse, in fact. You know, that's a standard a position of those who support atrocities. I mean, there's a perfectly obvious reason to scrutinize Israel. Yes, there are terrible things going on in other places, but in Israel, we're carrying them out. We're, the U.S. or? The U.S. I mean, we're we're doing it. In what, in what way? Please explain. Well, first of all, there's the $3 billion in aid, which is really probably about twice that when you figure out all the details of how it works. Uh, diplomatic support, the vetoes of the Security Council to protect them, 
pretty much like South Africa. Reagan was vetoing Security Council resolutions condemning South Africa. Uh, military support, close military relations, very close, intimate military relations, actually much more than South Africa. They can get away with what they're doing just because the U.S. supports it. So uh, the reason for focusing on Israel is the same reason you ought to focus on yourself. You know, in Iran, you expect dissidents to talk about Iranian crimes, not Israeli crimes. Uh, China, you expect Ai Weiwei to talk about China, not uh, you know, not the Congo. I mean, uh, I suppose the commissars everywhere say uh, double standards. But the reasoning's the same everywhere. I mean, we respect dissidents in other countries who focus on their own crimes. It's just ourselves we're not allowed to look at. What do you think of the boycott, divestments, and uh, sanctions movement? Do you support it? It's interesting that in the case of South Africa, there wasn't a BDS movement. There were BDS tactics used, but there was no BDS movement with a guru running it, and there was no catechism and so on. And the tactics were, by and large, pretty successful. They were targeted. So, for example, academic institutions were targeted for things like racist hiring. Uh, sports teams were targeted because they were, would not allow blacks to participate. Uh, uh, and in general, there were uh, products were boycotted, and if they involved, uh, you know, the apartheid uh, programs, uh, uh, there were uh, condemnations of the way uh, uh, black workers were treated, the bantustans, and so on. And that was pretty effective. Uh, there were weapons boycotts. Boy in fact, even the United Nations banned weapons shipments. Uh, but there was no BDS movement in. Here, and it's mostly the U.S., uh, there is a BDS movement, which is very ambiguous. I mean, it does not distinguish the kinds of things that are uh, principled and effective from the kind that are just sort of feel-good activities but are ineffective and even harmful. So, for example, if you take the things you mentioned before, uh, boycotting products in the set from the settlements, okay, or or uh, uh, research activities conducted together with the settlements or whatever, you know, anything connected with the illegal settlements that makes perfect sense. It's intelligible. It brings out the issues. Uh, it, uh, uh, it does strike at the crucial point, the illegal occupation, and it's effective. Uh, the kind of delegitimization that um, uh, Israel's worried about now are uh, protests about um, uh, the settlements. On the other hand, if you start talking about, say, Israeli di discrimination within Israel, which there is, uh, then it's it's kind of meaningless. This, how about within the United States? And why don't we boycott uh, Harvard because of the number of blacks in prison? Uh, it, it is so empty, you know, and, and meaningless to the. And, and in fact also counterproductive, just apart from unprincipled, it's counterproductive. So when you say, say, uh, pass a resolution saying let's boycott Israeli universities, uh, obviously... As was, wasn't there a recent the academic association? Uh, the immediate reaction, perfectly predictable, is uh, a huge backlash, entirely overwhelming it, saying it's all anti-Semitism, let's support uh, Israel, you know. It's... A, it's, it's uh, it's harmful to the Palestinians, apart from being unprincipled. 
Well, you have to think about those things when you're when you're an activist. You think about the people you're trying to protect, not just do I feel good. You know, that's uh, elementary. You know, not every action that makes you feel good is helpful to the victims. Sometimes it's harmful to the victims. But once you get a BDS movement, you're going to be prone to that kind of thing, because movements have leaders have. Uh, uh, a catechism you got to repeat, and the people have to follow, and so on. And it tends to uh, be a very mixed story. Some of the ta- uh, the tactics can be effective and sensible, uh, and uh, Im- important and helpful to the victims, or they can be harmful. And you have to distinguish that. It's the same on everything else. Like take say Vietnam protests. I'm sure you remember, but uh, you could kind of understand why. The young people by say nineteen late sixties were so outraged and desperate that they decided the way to protest the war is to walk down Main Street and break windows. The Vietnamese were strongly opposed to that. They could understand that this just harms us. You go down Main Street and break windows, you're just going to create a backlash against uh, in the support of the war. You know, you get the hard hats for the war phenomenon. Uh, what the Vietnamese was interesting in those days, what they advocated were tactics so mild that the American movement laughed at them. I remember meetings where the Vietnamese talked about how much they, uh, how impressed they were when a group of women stood at a at a graveyard of American soldiers and mourned the American soldiers who had died. It was pretty hard to sell things like that to the American activists, but that was the Vietnamese one, because they didn't care whether American activists felt good. They wanted the war to end, you know? And if you can't think about that, then don't call yourself a a committed activist. Those are the things you have to keep in mind. What are the effects going to be? A listener sent me this uh, Howard Zinn quote, uh, small acts when multiplied, multiplied by millions of people can transform the world. Yeah, that was his uh, one of the main themes of his work, people's history and everything else, and there's a lot of truth to it, and plenty of examples. I mean, uh, you know, say 1960, uh, a couple of black students uh, sat in at a lunch counter in uh, Greensboro, North Carolina. Uh, they were, of course, immediately arrested and thrown out, which could have ended it, but the next day... More black students came in, bigger arrests. Uh, pretty soon you had uh, Freedom Riders, uh, SNCC, Student Nonviolent Coordinating Commission. Uh, uh, pretty soon you had a massive civil rights movement, uh, uh, occasions for Martin Luther King to take a really prominent, effective part. And it achieved a lot. Not didn't end, uh, It didn't end racism. What would be some techniques for breaking through the catechism of received wisdom? First point is developing an open and critical mind, taking the doctrines that are standard, and you just read the newspapers, you see them, taking each one of them and asking, can this be sustained? Uh, Is the United States uh, dedicated to democracy? Uh, Is Iran the greatest threat to world peace? Uh, Do we have a market system? Does the public relations industry uh, try to promote choices or to to restrict them? Anything you look at, 
every one of these things, you have to ask yourself, is it true? A pretty good criterion is that if some doctrine is widely accepted without qualification, it's probably false. The first step is to just try to get yourself to have an open mind, a willingness to challenge dogma, to question it at least, to question repressive institutions. And once you've gotten to that, you can start reading more, uh, looking at the world with more uh, informed and open eyes. And then you have to just join with others. There's not a lot you can do yourself. You can join with others to try to, uh, uh, going back to Howard, Howard Zinn's comment, to carry out those small actions which can light a spark and multiply and lead to other things, and then on, no limit. It's been very successful in the past over time. No reason why it shouldn't be in the future. Whenever the system comes under any kind of pressure, it offers up what, what are called reforms. Uh, these, in, to a great extent, are placebos and, and just, you know, a lot of hot air. Uh, I remember years ago you told me that when you hear the word reform, you should reach for your wallet because probably someone's trying to steal it. Well, reform is an interesting word. So, for example, uh, we don't call... Uh, Mao's uh, collectivization programs reforms. Uh, on the other hand, if you take a look at the current issue of uh, current history of major journal, you can read praise of Mexico's reforms, namely opening the oil industry to international uh, uh, exploitation instead of maintaining it for Mexico. Now, the term reform is like most terms of political usage. You have to distinguish between its literal meaning and its meaning in political warfare. The term reform is usually used to mean something that power systems approve of. Uh, reforms that they don't, the changes that they don't approve of are not called reforms. So educational reforms in the United States, a term that refers to the various measures that are being undertaken to undermine the public education system. Uh, so yes, you have to be careful about that. On the other hand, it shouldn't lead us to uh, reject the uh, recognition that uh, changes that are imposed on systems of power by public pressure sometimes do ameliorate. They are literally reforms. And it's uh, not just uh, liberal administration. So take, say, Nixon. Uh, he passed, uh, under Nixon, there were there was legislation passed, not because he was a nice guy, but that were quite uh, effective, like the Environmental Protection Agency or OSHA, you know, the uh, health, safety and health uh, regulations, earned income tax credit, which is maybe the main, one of the most important welfare programs. Uh, and uh, these are under pressure, but they're significant. They don't change the institutional structures. They're not revolutionary, but they modify them, and they make people's lives better. Occasionally I do uh, crossword puzzles. I wonder if you ever do crossword puzzles. No. You don't. Do, you, do you know that you are, them ideologically. you are a clue in, in the New York Times crossword puzzle? It's always linguist Chomsky, and it's a four-letter answer. Yeah, I wonder what it is. <laughs> no, but it's interesting that it's never dissident... Chomsky, Chomsky or social critic Chomsky, you're always uh, there. I know as a, about it because Carol used to do them. 
I thought I think they're a horrible waste of time. But well, sometimes you learn things like learn things like I just came across in a recent puzzle. Uh, this is the clue. So see if you get it. Philosopher who wrote, "It is difficult to free fools from the chains they revere." I can think of a lot of people who might have said that. <laughs> it was uh, Voltaire. But it's interesting that... Um, but you can learn things much more easily by just opening the page. Noam, to talk obviously about the Middle East, the region is engulfed in flames from uh, Libya to Iraq. One new formation, jihadi formation after another seems to spring out from nowhere. And the current focus, of course, is on uh, ISIS. What, what can you tell us about ISIS and what, have, what are its origins? Well, actually, there's an interesting article that just appeared a couple of days ago by a highly qualified uh, analyst, Graham Fuller, CIA background, one of the leading intelligence and mainstream analysts of the Middle East. And the title is the United States created ISIS. Uh, this is one of the conspiracy theories, the thousands of them that go around the Middle East, but this is another source. This is right at the heart of the U.S. establishment. Now, he hastens to point out that he doesn't mean uh, the United States uh, decided to put ISIS into existence and then funded it. His point is, and I think it's accurate, that uh, the United States created the background out of which ISIS grew and developed. Uh, part of it was just the standard sledgehammer approach, smash up what you don't like. Uh, in 2003, uh, the United States and Britain uh, invaded Iraq, major crime. Iraq had already been virtually destroyed, uh, first of all, by the long uh, a decade-long war with Iran, uh, in which, incidentally, Iraq was backed by the United States, uh, and uh, then the decade of sanctions, which uh, were described, they were described as genocidal by the international, respected international diplomats who administered them, and both resigned in protest for that reason. They devastated the civilian society. They strengthened the dictator, uh, compelled the population to rely on him for survival. It's probably the reason he wasn't sent on the path of a whole stream of other dictators who were overthrown. Uh, finally, the U.S. just decided to attack the country in 2003. Uh, the attack, it, it was compared, it's compared by many Iraqis to the Mongol invasions. Uh, of a thousand years earlier, uh, very destructive, not I mean, hundreds of thousands of people killed, uh, millions of refugees, millions of other displaced persons, the destruction of uh, the um, archaeological richness and wealth of the country back to Samaria. And one of the effects of the invasion was immediately to institute sectarian divisions, part of the brilliance of the invasion force, its director, Paul Bremer, was to uh, separate the sects, you know, Sunni, Shia, Kurds, separate them from one another, set them at each other's throats, 
uh, within a couple of years, there was a major sectarian conflict uh, incited by the invasion, uh, very brutal. Uh, you can see it if you say, look at Baghdad. If you take a map of Baghdad, say in 2002, it's a mixed city. Sunni and Shia are living in the same neighborhoods. They're intermarried. Uh, uh, in fact, sometimes they say they didn't even know who was Sunni, who was Shia. It's like knowing whether your friends are in one Protestant group or another Protestant group. There are differences, but it was not a, it was not hostile. In fact, for a couple of years, they were, both sides were saying there'll never be Sunni-Shia conflicts. We're too uh, intermingled in the nature of our lives, uh, where we live, and so on. And by 2006, it was a raging war. Uh, out of that, that uh, conflict then was spread to the whole region. By now, the whole region is being torn apart by Sunni-Shia conflicts. And out of such conflicts, the natural dynamics of them, of a conflict like that, is that the most extreme elements begin to take over. And they had roots. Their roots are in the major U.S. ally, Saudi Arabia. That's been the major U.S. ally in the region as long as the U.S. has been seriously involved there. In fact, since the, founda well, since the foundation of the Saudi state, it's kind of a family dictatorship, as you know. Uh, and the reason is it has a huge amount of oil. Uh, Britain, before the United States, had all typically preferred radical Islamism to secular nationalism. And when the U.S. took over, it essentially took the same stand. The radical Islam, which is centered in Saudi Arabia, it's the most extremist, uh, radical Islamic state in the world. Uh, makes Iran look like a tolerant modern country by comparison. Uh, and of course, the secular parts of the Middle East, the, of the Arab Middle East, even more so. And it's not only uh, directed by an extremist version of Islam, the Wahhabi Salafi version, but it's also a missionary state. So it uses its huge resources, oil resources, to uh, promulgate these doctrines throughout the region, establishes schools, mosques, uh, you know, clerics, and so on, all over the place from Pakistan to Africa, North Africa. That, uh, an extremist version of Saudi extremism uh, is the doctrine that was picked up by ISIS. So it grew out of, ideologically, the most extremist form of Islam, the Saudi Wahhabi version, and the uh, conflicts that were engendered by the uh, uh, by the uh, U.S. sledgehammer that smashed up Iraq and has now spread everywhere. Uh, and that's what Fuller means. By, and uh, Saudi Arabia not only uh, uh, provides the ideological core that led to the uh, ISIS radical extremism, but it also funds them, not the Saudi government, but wealthy Saudis, wealthy Kuwaitis uh, and others provide the funding and the... Uh, ideological support for these uh, jihadi groups that are springing over all, up all over the place. This uh, attack on the region by the United States and Britain is the source of where this thing originates. That's what Fuller meant by saying the United States created ISIS. And you can be 
pretty confident that as conflicts develop, they'll become more, the more extremist, the more brutal, the harshest groups will take over. That's what happens when violence becomes the means of interaction. Uh, it's almost automatic. Um, it's true in neighborhoods. You know, it's true in international affairs. And the dynamics are perfectly evident. And that's what's happened. You wrote a book with uh, Edward Herman years ago called Manufacturing Consent, and there was an interesting concept in there called worthy and unworthy victims. And you write, a propaganda system will consistently portray people abused in enemy states as worthy victims, whereas those treated with equal or greater severity by its own government or clients will be unworthy. And then you go on to give the example of the Kurds in Iraq and the Kurds in Turkey. Could you flesh that out? The Kurds in Iraq uh, were victims of U.S. violence and power uh, in the 1970s. But by uh, the 19, late 1990s, the United States had decided to protect the Kurds from Saddam. That's quite a change because Saddam had been the major U.S. ally. The U.S. essentially sold out the Iraqi Kurds to Saddam in the mid-70s. When Henry Kissinger was asked why he did that, he made his famous statement that foreign policy should not be confused with missionary work. We're involved in foreign policy. We're not missionaries, so we want to sell them out to our friend Saddam. That's okay. Through the 1980s, the United States supported Saddam in the war against Iran. Uh, Saddam was taken off the terrorist list in 1982 so that the United States could start providing him with badly needed aid. Uh, as you know, Saddam launched a horrendous attack against the Iraqi Kurds. Uh, the Reagan administration, Reagan himself, blocked efforts even to criticize it. And the Pentagon came out with a story that it was a Iran that was responsible for Halabja and uh, Alanfal and the other atrocities. And this continued until 1990. The record is remarkable. When Reagan was replaced by George Bush, number one, uh, the one who's called the statesman, not the madman, you know, H.W. Bush, he just adored Saddam Hussein. He uh, overruled uh, Treasury Department objections to send more badly needed agricultural aid to Saddam, partly badly needed because he had devastated big agricultural areas. Uh, August 1990, Saddam made his first mistake. He disobeyed orders, or more likely probably misunderstood them, uh, invaded Kuwait. Uh, that was not intended. The reaction was very strong. He immediately recognized this is a mistake. He tried to find a way to withdraw. The United States didn't want him to withdraw. There's a long story there. I won't go through it. But uh, the U.S. basically wanted to drive him out by violence, not to have him withdraw. That led to the first Iraq war. Uh, the U.S. was in total control of the region at the time. I mean, just uh, Saddam barely existed at that point. But he launched a major assault against the Shiites in the south. The United States refused to block it. It was a big massacre of Shiites in the south, and the U.S. 
didn't lift a finger. They didn't even try to block uh, military helicopters. After that, Saddam turned against the Kurds in the north. At first, the same thing happened, but the reporting was quite different. Uh, reporters went to the north, and if you remember the television coverage at the time, they were sort of appalled that uh, all of these atrocities were being carried out against uh, people whose uh, children are blue-eyed and blonde, just like us. You know, we can't tolerate that. And there was a big uh, hue and cry over it. And finally, uh, Bush established the no-fly zone. That was the Kurds in Iraq, then come various complicated things. At the same time, in the 1990s, going to Turkey, Turkish repression against the Kurds has been extremely severe. Uh, tens of thousands of people were killed. Uh, about 3,500 towns and villages were destroyed. Probably a couple of million refugees, nobody counts. Uh, every imaginable form of torture. I mean, it was just a horrendous attack. Completely supported by the United States. 80% uh, of the arms came from the United States. And in fact, this is Clinton now. As the atrocities mounted, the arms flow increased. Atrocities actually peaked in 1997. And in 1997, Clinton sent more arms to Turkey, right, that's a NATO ally, more arms to Turkey than the entire Cold War period combined. The press refused to report any of this. It wasn't a secret. Uh, there's extensive reports from Human Rights Watch. They had a very good investigator there, uh, Amnesty International. You could find out what's happening, but you couldn't read it in the New York Times. Uh, they had a bureau in Ankara, of course, but it wasn't interested in covering this, especially the U.S. role. That's not the right story. The Kurds of uh, Iraq at that point had switched from unworthy to worthy. They might switch back. But uh, uh, for the Kurds, all of this it teaches a lesson, a lesson that they ought to know. There is a Kurdish slogan uh, that our only friends are the mountains, and that's a good slogan. Uh, they should not be deluded into thinking that if uh, the United States is patting them on the head today, it won't be supporting another Halabja massacre tomorrow. That's uh, the record demonstrates that clearly. Incidentally, this worthy-unworthy uh, distinction, uh, we should have mentioned this. It actually comes from Orwell, who made a distinction between what he called people and unpeople. People are those who count. Unpeople are those who are th they're not human. You can do anything to them you like. Actually, that uh, came up uh, to me vividly a couple of hours ago. I happened to be in a video conference in London and uh, the moderator of the group there, one of the questions he asked, he pointed, he, just, he brought up the uh, horror in the West over the uh, beheadings that are taking place, the beheadings of journalists. There was another one in Algeria a uh, day or two ago. And he said, this is just so hideous that it creating such extraordinary outrage in the West that we just have to do something about it. They said, bad is, this was a pretty liberal group, said, bad, we, we recognize that U.S., uh, British, Israeli atrocities are pretty awful. Uh, but even during the Israeli attack on Gaza, I mean, you didn't see things like beheadings. In fact, during the Israeli attack on Gaza, if you look at the 
sectors of Gaza that were subject to really vicious murderous attack, like Shufaya, uh, after the attack kind of relented, uh, people went in and were picking up pieces of bodies to try to identify who, who was murdered. Uh, all of that was reported. But he was correct. That didn't horrify the West. Uh, when we carry out atrocities like smashing people up so that their body parts are scattered around and you can't even identify who they were, that's not a crime. It can be a mistake. You're sometimes allowed to say it's a mistake. It's just like the drone assassination campaign, which undoubtedly does worse things than beheading to its victims. It's a mistake. Maybe it's a mistake, but it's not a crime. On the other hand, if uh, ISIS or whatever offshoot it is in Algeria beheads people, that offends us to the heavens. And it is horrendous, undoubtedly, though it's a tiny fraction of what we and our clients do. The uh, Kurdish area now also has incorporated Kirkuk, a very valuable um, center of uh, oil, uh, thus giving the possibility of uh, economic viability for an independent uh, Kurdish state. What do you think uh, of those possibilities? Israeli and Turkish commentators have, have used the word inevitable, that it's going to happen. Well, it depends on what the master of the world decides. Uh, for the moment, at least, the United States is opposed, which means that uh, Kurdistan, though it has plenty of oil, uh, can't sell it on the international market because the U.S. won't allow it. I mean, some undoubtedly get sold. You know, some gets leaked into Turkey. Uh, Israel's apparently purchasing some of it, but... Uh, the Kurdish tankers are uh, wandering around the Mediterranean uh, trying to keep from being too visible and unable to offload their, uh, the oil that they're carrying. And at this point, uh, the Kurdish uh, quasi-state can't even pay its officials. They're not getting anything like enough revenue. And suddenly all this is happening while uh, Erbil, the sort of capital, is full of uh, high-rises, uh, you know, skyscrapers going up all over the place, tremendous wealth, uh, but uh, the typical properties of an oil state, and they're in, in trouble so far. You know, it's landlocked. You know, they have no access to the outside. Uh, Iraq refuses to uh, provide them with any resources to, or to allow them to sell their oil through Iraq. It has to pretty much go through Turkey, and that's going to require... Uh, U.S. support when it goes to the end of the pipeline and gets into the Mediterranean. And so far, that hasn't been forthcoming. So I don't think it's at all inevitable. There's more to it than that. Iraqi Kurdistan, you take a look at the map, the whole Kurdish region is kind of a sort of a unit. The biggest part is southeast Turkey. Turks are worried about that, of course. Uh, another part of it is in Syria. That's the Kurdish part of Syria. Assad had more or less been leaving that alone, so they had a kind of semi-autonomy during the Syrian disaster. That's, they're now under attack by the, uh, the jihadi forces, the Sunni jihadi forces, ISIS, uh, uh, al-Nusra, and others. There's a whole bunch of them. Uh, but, and the question is, can they link up to uh, Iraqi Kurdistan uh, and maybe ultimately to Turkish Kurdish areas? There's very complicated negotiations going on between the Iraqi Kurdish leadership 
and the Turkish government. But the Kurdish areas in Syria are under the control of a group which is pretty sympathetic to the uh, PKK, the With the rise of ISIS and uh, Salafi theology and ideology in the region, wouldn't this be an opportunity for rapprochement with uh, Iran? That's what the Iraqi government is calling for. Uh, Iran and uh, the United States happen to be on the, very much on the same side here. It's not the first time, incidentally. Uh, in the case of Afghanistan, uh, Iran was strongly opposed to the Taliban and was very helpful to the United States in its invasion of Afghanistan. In fact, they, in 2003, when Iran had, you know, the Khatami, the kind of moderate leader, was made an offer to, to the Bush administration to just uh, to put all of the conflicted questions on the table, Israel, nuclear weapons, everything, let's just discuss them all. Uh, the Bush administration rejected it, didn't want to have anything to do with it. We've decided Iran's an enemy. They're too independent. We don't tolerate that. But this is another case like it. Uh, and incidentally, the same is true of Assad. Uh, the only forces, major military force uh, attacking ISIS happens to be Assad's uh, Syrian quasi-government at this point, uh, which is uh, allied closely with Iran. Iran is sending, apparently sending, uh, arms, advisors, and probably troops to uh, Iraq to support the Iraqi government against the ISIS assault. Uh, both sides have announced that, and it's almost certainly true. But the United States has insisted that the co what they call, what Obama calls his international coalition, must exclude Iran and must exclude Assad. So the coalition consists of, its main component is Saudi Arabia, which is the main funder of ISIS and the ideological center for ISIS. I mean, this makes absolutely no sense. The role of Turkey is uh, central to this uh, crisis. Uh, Vijay Prashad, uh, who teaches at uh, Trinity College in Connecticut, is an author, uh, said that uh, all evidence suggests that Turkey has allowed ISIS fighters, when they've been wounded, to return to Turkey to get treated in Turkish hospitals. So there's very good evidence that the border is porous. Yeah. Oh, it's very porous. That's the big border for Syria, and the fighters are just pouring up and down across it. They're getting military support, medical aid. And, of course, Turkey was under great pressure to, by Obama to join the great coalition. They have an enormous military force. If they entered, they could wipe it out in no time, just as Iran could. But they're not, they're not interested, and Iran's not permitted. Turkey is a, a NATO ally, long uh, recipient of uh, U.S. Uh, military aid. Uh, it would seem that Washington would have the kind of leverage to exact what it wants in terms of sealing the border. You'd think so especially after what happened in the 1990s, which I described, where the United States Clinton was pouring arms into Turkey. As I said, it became the leading arms recipient of the world uh, to support uh, Turkey's vicious counterinsurgency operation against the Kurds. But the Turks are interesting. 
They don't just follow orders. Something extremely interesting happened in 2003 uh, when the U.S. invaded Iraq. Uh, you take a look at the map, it was obvious that they wanted to invade from Turkey, right? Uh, for the, not only does Turkey have a huge military, it has all the big military bases in uh, eastern Turkey, and it's right there on the border. It would have been a perfect place for the U.S. forces to attack Iraq. Well, the Turkish population was strongly opposed to that. The polls in Turkey showed a 95% refusal to take part in the U.S. attack, and not because they loved Iraq. They just didn't want... Uh, that they didn't want to be part of this uh, U.S. aggression. Uh, to everyone's amazement, the Turkish military permitted the government to block, uh, they have tremendous, but had less now, but at that time had tremendous power. They prevented the, they permitted the Turkish government to follow the will of 95% of the population. If you look back, that caused complete furor in the United States. How dare they refuse U.S. orders and pay attention to 95% of the population? Uh, it got, uh, they were denounced in the press, you know, uh, the press for the first time started reporting Turkish human rights violations. And while they were going on in the 90s, they'd barely report them, but all of a sudden they dug them out. Now we have to talk about how awful the Turks are. Uh, the most uh, striking case was when Paul Wolfowitz who in the media is called the idealist-in-chief of the Bush administration, just a deeply moral person, so idealistic that he kind of goes overboard. Uh, he was, he uh, bitterly condemned, he was Defense Department, was he in the Defense Department? Something high up in the Defense Department. He uh, bitterly condemned the Turkish military because they permitted, they didn't force the government to accept the U.S. demands. And he insisted that the military apologize to the United States and make sure they'll, you know, make it clear they'll never carry out another crime like this. Now you have to recall that this was exactly at the time when the government and the media and the intellectual community were orating about uh, the U.S. dedication to democracy promotion. All of this was going on at exactly the same time. If you want to be a prestigious intellectual or journalist, you have to learn that you can sort of maintain completely contradictory ideas at the same time and not notice it, uh, which is what was happening here, for example. That would be Orwell's doublethink. Doublethink, yeah. That's Orwell's definition of doublethink is the ability to have contradictory ideas in your mind and accept them both and not notice it. That's practically a definition of the intellectual world. <laughs> Since the founding of the uh, Turkish Republic in 1923, uh, the military has been the dominant institution in that country. How has uh, Erdogan been able to sideline the military? He instituted a big purge of the top military and he got away with it. Uh, the military has apparently uh, uh, been reduced in its power over the government. How much, it's not clear, but substantially. That was one of uh, Erdogan's uh, major achievements. 
Minorities in the, in the Middle East, the Yazdi in uh, Iraq, Armenians in, in northern uh, Syria, and other groups are, you know, they're getting hammered. Uh, yeah. And what can be done to protect, you know, these endangered groups? Now, there is a framework of international law, which in principle everyone accepts. It's based in the UN Charter. In the United States, it's the supreme law of the land through because of the way the Constitution, Article 6, uh, identifies international treaties. And the uh, UN Charter gives, gives an answer to your question. Article 39 of the UN Charter says that the Security Council has to determine if there's a threat to peace. Okay, like for example, the massacre of the Yazidis. That's the job of the Security Council. Furthermore, the Security Council alone, nothing else in the world, just the UN Security Council, can authorize the use of force uh, in the case of uh, what they determine to be a threat of peace. That's the basic structure of the Charter. Apart from that, uh, there's an absolute ban against uh, the threat or use of force except in immediate self-defense against armed attack, which is irrelevant here, okay? So there's an answer. The U.S. and Britain and Israel and other clients are rogue states, states that disregard international law. It doesn't apply to them. They do what they want. They have a monopoly of force, or they want to have a monopoly of force, and uh, they use it as they like. Uh, well, that restricts the options for how this problem could be dealt with. What could happen in a law-abiding world is that Obama could have asked the Security Council for a resolution declaring that there's a serious uh, human rights situation and threat to peace in, uh, in the uh, ISIL, ISIS areas and authorize the use of force to, uh, 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 to deal with it. And that use of force should, of course, have primarily involved the regional actors, including, of course, Iran. Uh, but that's not what happened. It was avoided, ignored, and if you read the press today, there isn't a mention that there could have been a lawful way to deal with this issue, because that's just kind of out of the consciousness of uh, Western intellectual culture, the concept that we could act as a law-abiding state. It's just it kind of, it, it's unimaginable. It's, it's something, if you mention it, people don't know what you're talking about. It's not an option, you know. So it didn't arise. And what's, what is done is what the master decides. Talk a little bit about uh, the referendum in Scotland on uh, September 18th, which was defeated 45% uh, to 55% of the people staying with the United Kingdom. In terms of its implications for other areas of the world, I'm thinking of Kashmir in India, uh, the Armenians in Nagorno-Karabakh, uh, for example, and uh, the Kurds in Iraq. Well, talk? Europe, what's, I mean, there are kind of conflicting tendencies at work in Europe. For the last couple hundred years, Europe was the most savage place in the world. Uh, Europeans had no higher goal than to slaughter one another. I mean, the wars that were going on in Europe were just mind-boggling. Uh, like the Thirty Years' War in 
uh, 17th century, uh, probably about a third of the population of Germany was wiped out. Uh, then the 20th century had these two monstrous wars. Uh, by 1945, the Europeans kind of comprehended that the next time they play their favorite game of slaughtering one another, it's all going to be over because the level of destructive technology had reached a point that they couldn't play that game anymore. And Europe did move towards reconciliation. So France and Germany, which had been slaughtering each other for centuries, uh, did move towards uh, peaceful reconciliation. And the European Union started to integrate there's an agreement, Schengen Agreement, which allows people to move freely across borders. Uh, when you travel to Europe, if you have, uh, you'll notice that uh, for members of the European Union, you go in one place, uh, foreigners, non-European Union, you go in another, and there's free interchange in the European countries. Uh, uh, that's a generally positive uh, development, I think, eroding national borders and leading to greater interactions among people who ought to be, uh, you know, cooperating, not fighting each other. Uh, but there's another, there are other things happening at the same time. Uh, the democratic participation has severely declined. The decisions over the European uh, economy are made in Brussels by bureaucrats, uh, mainly under the influence of the Bundesbank, the German bank, you know, big, the big economic center. And uh, the opinions of people in Europe are mostly totally disregarded. Um, there have been times when this has become almost surreal. Uh, about two years ago, the, uh, the prime minister of Greece, Papandreou, uh, made the, a mild suggestion. He suggested that the people of Greece should be allowed to have a referendum uh, to decide whether they would accept the harsh austerity measures decreed by the bankers in Brussels. The world, was, the West was just outraged. Uh, the press, uh, intellectuals and others were denouncing Papandreou for daring to ask the population whether they should follow the orders of you know, the bureaucrats and the bankers. Of course they have to. It's led to a big reaction in Europe, complicated reaction. Some of it is it's frightening. There's a right-wing reaction, which is kind of, yeah, in some places, neo-Nazi, other places, just horribly right-wing, which is a kind of a popular reaction against the loss of uh, democratic participation. But there's another reaction, which at least in my view is more healthy, and that's a, re a reaction towards regionalization in opposition to the centralization of the European Union. So in a number of parts of Europe, uh, parts of it are calling for autonomy. It, Scotland is one case. Uh, Catalonia is another. It's happening right now. The Catalonia is calling for a referendum for autonomy. The Spanish government so far isn't going to permit it, they say happening in the Basque country. Uh, it's happening in parts of France and elsewhere. You know, Europe's a, a complex of uh, cultures, languages, uh, history, uh, complicated tapestry of this kind. One of the things that's happening in Europe is a 
rapid uh, destruction of languages. Languages are disappearing very rapidly throughout Europe. It was, it was a rich array of languages, in mutually incomprehensible languages all over Europe. They're dying very quickly and uh, falling under, uh, as the nation-state system began to impose a national language. So like in Italy, there's plenty of people who can't talk to their grandmothers because they talk a different language. Uh, but then there's a counter tendency towards reviving regional languages and regional cultures. Well, I think the Scottish referendum is part of this. The same questions arise all over the place. In the whole Middle East region, the state system it was simply imposed by imperial power. The lines of the states have nothing to do with the people of the region. Like, say, take Iraq. I mean, the British established modern Iraq in their interests, not in the interests of Iraqis. So they took the, the region you know, where the conflict is now, around Mosul, they added that to Iraq because Britain wanted to have the oil, keep it from Turkey. Uh, they set up the principality of Kuwait uh, to keep Iraq from having free access to the sea so it would be controlled. Uh, the Sykes-Picot Treaty uh, between France and Britain uh, assigned Syria and Lebanon to France and Iraq and what was then Palestine to Britain. But that was for their imperial interests. It had nothing to do with the people. It draws lines uh, that just make no sense from the point of view of the people. The Ottoman system which had preceded it was pretty ugly and brutal, but at least it recognized local autonomy. So during the Ottoman period, you could go from... Uh, Cairo to Baghdad to Istanbul without crossing a border. It was just kind of porous, you know, like sort of like the European Union today. And that fits the nature of the region much more accurately, uh, partly out of corruption and incompetence. The Ottoman rulers allowed uh, considerable autonomy even to subparts of cities. You know, like the Armenians could run the Armenian community, the Greeks could run the Greek community, and so on, and they lived in a kind of harmony. Uh, that was broken up by the imposition of the state systems. That's true all over the world. You take a look at Africa, uh, huge conflicts all over the place. Almost all of them trace, trace back to the establishment of borders by the imperial powers, England, France, Belgium, Germany to a lesser extent which took no account of the nature of the populations, just drew the boundaries where they wanted it. Well, naturally, that leads to conflict. And it makes there's every reason to hope, I think, that... What's the significance in the dramatic fall in the price of oil? There's article after article saying, wow, this is great for the American consumers. Gas is under $2 uh, a gallon. People will be driving more. They'll have extra money in their pocket, etc. It's a total catastrophe. In fact, it's astonishing to read the articles, which say exactly what you described, without mentioning that this is going to destroy our grandchildren. Who cares about that? If the price of oil goes, it's already way too low. Oil should be priced much higher on the American market, the way it is in Europe, for example, to try to discourage 
excessive use of fossil fuels, which are destroying the environment. And it's pretty dangerous. It's getting worse every day. Uh, the latest concerns, again, they've been in the background for a while, are that there might be uh, an explosion of uh, methane uh, from the melting of the Arctic and the permafrost. And if that happens, some of the predictions are very dire. In mid-January, there were a couple of uh, new developments, headlines reading, uh, Ocean Life Faces Mass Extinction, and the other one was 2014, hottest year since record-keeping began in 1880, and 10 of the hottest years have occurred since 1997. Yet the response from the political class and the owners of the economy seems lukewarm, tepid, and cosmetic. Well, there was just an interesting uh, poll by the Pew polling agency. Uh, it was released at Davos, you know, the meeting of the all the big shots. It was a study of uh, attitudes of CEOs of corporations. They polled them on what they considered to be the significant issues that they faced. Uh, what they cared about was profits tomorrow, prospects a week from now. Uh, what's the growth situation like? Are we going to have enough low-paid workers? Uh, on and on through the risk levels. And finally, at the very bottom, was, well, there's climate change, you know, minor thing off on the edges. It's not that they're bad people. It reveals an institutional pathology. There's an institutional structure which says that if you're the CEO of a major corporation, which incidentally means that you have enormous influence in the political system, then you simply don't care about uh, what happens to the world in the next generation, including your own grandchildren. What you care about is profits tomorrow. It's an institutional imperative. I came across uh, a Yanomami uh, shaman leader. His name is uh, Davi Kopinawa. Um, and this group is about 30,000, 40,000 of them in uh, northern Brazil, southern Venezuela. He says, the white people want to kill everything. They will soil the rivers and lakes and take what is left. Their thoughts are constantly attached to their merchandise. They relentlessly and always desire new goods. Indigenous people, I'm not saying across the board, uh, certainly have a different, perhaps, uh, connection or relation to the land, to nature. That's pretty much true around the world. Uh, so in Canada, the uh, what are called the First Nations, the indigenous people, are leading the uh, struggles uh, uh, mobilizations, uh, legal efforts, others to try to prevent the uh, extremely dangerous uh, expansion of the uh, use of highly destructive fossil fuels in um, western southwestern Canada, go down to Bolivia, Ecuador, uh, the Amazon. It's the indigenous people who are in the forefront of trying to prevent uh, overuse of uh, fossil fuels and other resources and to restore some kind of balance with nature. In fact, the countries with the largest indigenous populations, first Bolivia, which actually has a majority, and then Ecuador, large population, are have been in the lead in uh, trying to establish what they call rights of nature. It's even a constitutional provision in Bolivia. And the same is true in Australia. It's uh, in uh, India, the tribal people are trying to protect resources. Uh, I mean, th these are communities which for 
very long periods have lived in some kind of balance with nature. I mean, I don't want to turn it into utopia, but there's at least some concern for a balance with nature. And it's true that the uh, capitalist imperialist invasion did not have that concern. You can see it from the poll of CEOs, which is perfectly typical of uh, the attitude of the imperial uh, uh, powers that just wanted to ravage the world and take it for themselves for their immediate use. And you had some contact with, um, I believe, indigenous uh, groups in Colombia in, in the rainforest there. I did. I have spent some time in southern Colombia, which is a highly uh, embattled region. There's It's a region where uh, the area is under attack. The, the indigenous population, campesinos and indigenous people in Africa, Colombians, all of them, uh, are uh, under constant attack by... Uh, paramilitaries by the military, uh, now also by the guerrillas, which used to be uh, connected to the local populations. But uh, thanks to the militarization of the war, uh, FARC particularly have just been turned into another army preying on the peasants. Uh, also, a fumiga- what we call fumigation, which is chemical warfare, which destroys virtually everything. Uh, theoretically, it's aimed at uh, coca production, whatever one thinks of that. But uh, but but in fact, it destroys crops, uh, livestock, leaves. Uh, you know, you walk in the villages, you see children with uh, uh, all kind of uh, sores on their arms. Uh, people are dying. Uh, and I did visit. Uh, for once when I went, uh, the area was so violent that they wouldn't let us uh, go out of the local town, Popayan. So people came in from the countryside to talk to a couple of human rights activists who I was I joined. Uh, another time I went uh, with them to a remote village. Uh, the villagers are trying, who is, is a mixture of Campesino and indigenous at that there, Afro-Colombia and elsewhere, are trying to preserve the uh, uh, their water supplies. There's uh, a mountain which is virgin forest and is the source of Water, among also other, uh, has uh, symbolism of all kinds in their cultural life, and there, it is threatened by by mining, uh, which would destroy it. And they have quite sophisticated, thoughtful plans as to how to preserve the uh, hydrological resources and other resources. But they're fighting against powerful forces: the mining companies, uh, the government, uh, the multinationals in the background. Uh, and it's it's a battle, and also it's it's very violent. Actually, the first time we tried to go there, they wouldn't let us come because there was too much killing going on. Second time, we were able to get through. And you have a family connection as well. Can you talk about that? They were dedicating uh, a forest on the mountain to my late wife, and I went there for the ceremony of the dedication, climbing the mountain. There were shamans and so on. And the villagers all participated. It was a very uh, uh, a kind of moving and warm uh, a ceremony. The men climbed up the mountain. Uh, the women stayed and prepared a communal meal. And a pretty dramatic occurrence. In uh, Power Systems, the last book uh, we did, uh, you said that Latin America has shown increasing independence in international affairs. Is that trend continuing? 
It is, definitely. So I think it's probably the major factor be, behind uh, Obama's move to partially lift what we call normalized relations with Cuba, meaning lifting partially the uh, uh, attack on Cuba that's been going on for 50 years, partially. That's what it means to normalize relations. And he has moved in that direction. I suspect part of the reason was that the U.S. was simply being increasingly excluded from the hemisphere on this issue. The U.S. insisted back in the early 60s when it kind of ran the show that uh, Cuba be excluded from the hemispheric organizations. Uh, as Latin America has become more independent, more free of U.S. dominance, uh, it has increasingly insisted that Cuba be uh, allowed back into the hemispheric organizations. Well, when Obama announced the shift in policy vis-a-vis -vis, uh, Cuba, I didn't see any mention of the extensive terrorist campaign, the trade embargo, economic warfare, and uh, no mention, of course, of reparations or compensation. Uh, there's one mention of the terrorist war, and that is uh, witticisms about the silly uh, CIA pranks. Uh, trying to, you know, I don't know what, uh, burn Castro's beard or something like that. And you're allowed to make poison pens. You're allowed to make fun of that, but not of the fact that Kennedy launched a major terrorist war against Cuba. In fact, a very serious one. Uh, it was in his uh, brother, Robert Kennedy, was placed in charge of it. It was his highest priority, and the goal was to bring the terrors of the earth to Cuba the phrase that's used by uh, Arthur Schlesinger, uh, Kennedy's Latin American advisor, in his biography of Robert Kennedy. And it was very serious, uh, blowing up petrochemical plants, attacking, uh, sinking ships in the harbor, uh, 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 poisoning crops and livestock, uh, the uh, uh, shelling hotels, which incidentally with Russian visitors in them. Uh, it was quite serious. went on for years. Ken it was one of the factors that led to the missile crisis, uh, immediately after which almost led to a nuclear war. And when the missile crisis ended, Kennedy instantly relaunched the terrorist war and went on various forms for years into the 1990s. So that's not discussed. Actually, the first oral history, taking testimony from victims, uh, just appeared about two years ago, a Canadian researcher, Keith Bolender. But it hasn't been read here. Uh, the way the uh, Obama's message, if you read it, which was then echoed in commentary, is that our efforts to bring democracy and freedom to Cuba have not succeeded. Uh, so therefore, although they were all benevolent in intent, they haven't worked. So it's therefore to try time to try a new method to achieve our benevolent goals. Now that's Obama's description echoed in the commentary uh, for a record of 50 years of massive terrorism, of economic strangulation, uh, which was so extreme that if, say, uh, a European uh, uh, manufacturer of some, uh, I don't know what, medical equipment uh, used a little piece of nickel taken from Cuba, it had to be banned from international commerce, and the U.S. has plenty of power to do that. Uh, it was. It's really been savage. 
And but that's our benevolent efforts to bring democracy and freedom. The U.S. war on Cambodia was called a sideshow, the main event being uh, Vietnam. And the sideshow to the sideshow was landlocked, mostly rural Laos. In March 1970, you were on your way to Hanoi uh, and you were delayed for a week uh, in Vientiane, Laos. And you wrote about that. Um, it was published in uh, At War with Asia. I was very struck with your descriptive journalistic writing about what you saw. Uh, very clear, terse sentences. and uh, You had a very moving experience with uh, Fred Bramfman, who uh, recently passed, passed away in uh, September of 2014. He had been in Laos for many years, spoke Laotian. You went with him to a refugee camp uh, outside of, of Laos, uh, outside of Vientiane, and you wrote about that. And uh, I spent most of the, when I got off the plane, Fred was there. I didn't know him at the time, but we met right away. He'd been trying for some time to get uh, some Western exposure to the atrocities that were going on. He was one of the very few people. There were a few others, Walt Haney, a couple of others, who were working in Laos, who were had discovered what the, the crimes that were being committed, which were really shocking. That book that you have there, Voices from the Plain of Jars, uh, is Fred's, uh, 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 it's the results of Fred's research with victims of the uh, horrific air war that was going on. What it, um, there had been bombing of Laos from the mid-60s, but in 1968, uh, the U.S., uh, 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 th there was a, a cessation of the bombing of North Vietnam. Uh, there were um, negotiations beginning, and they cut back the bombing of North Vietnam. The, uh, the U.S. Uh, uh, officially announced that uh, they had all these extra... Uh, bombers around and nothing to do with them, so they decided to bomb northern Laos. Uh, this is a remote air, uh, area of uh, peasant villages, uh, uh, primitive, most of them probably didn't even know they were in Laos, and they were subjected to years of extremely intensive bombing. Uh, people were living in caves trying to survive. One should really read the testimonies in Fred's book to get a picture of it. He was trying to expose this. So anyway, we met as soon as we got there. and I spent most of the week with him. Uh, I was there for a week uh, thanks to the uh, boredom of an Indian bureaucrat. Uh, bureaucrats have nothing to do except to make life difficult for people. Uh, this guy was in charge of the UN flights from Vientiane to Hanoi. There was one flight a week in a special corridor protected corridor. You flew there and you saw jet planes flying all over the place uh, on their way to bomb whoever. Uh, and for some reason, he decided not to let us go the first week. It kind of amused him. So I stayed in Laos, which is a very good thing, because I learned a lot. I spent most of the week with Fred, not just the refugee camp. I went to the village where he had lived. I met uh, many contacts. In fact, you don't name Fred in your uh, article that appeared in the New York uh, Review of Books. You, you call him a Lao, you were in the company of a Lao-speaking American. 
that's what he requested. He did not want to be identified at that time. Later, of course, he joined. Fred Brantman uh, wrote an article, uh, actually, about your visit and his friendship with you. It came out in um, Salon in 2012. Um, I, mean, I don't want to embarrass you, but he said that uh, you really were, um, you broke down when you were talking to those villagers and when they, you heard those stories of what they had gone through under the U.S. bombing. Well, actually, um, Laos was the first time, there have been many since, in which I uh, fir saw firsthand uh, what the effect was on the victims of uh, massive atrocities. I, I mean, I hadn't been in the South in the United States during the Civil Rights Movement, which was bad enough, and uh, but I hadn't had exposure overseas before the uh, Laotian experience. Since then, I have many times. And yes, it was a very it's a shattering experience. Historian Al McCoy has written extensively about uh, Indochina in the second edition of... Um, Voices from the Plain of Jars uh, writes that approximately 20,000 civilians have been killed or maimed by unexploded cluster bombs I mean, since the bombing ended, and that continues. Uh, those numbers continue to mount. That's correct. There, uh, I've written about it, too. There's, uh, there has been a British uh, demining team working there, uh, but uh, the, apparently the area is so saturated with cluster bombs. These are tiny little bomblets, they call them, you know, which a child could pick up and think as a toy and then it'll blow up, or a farmer could hit with a, a hoe and it explodes. And they're all over the place, and it's a massive effort to uh, uh, remove them. And uh, very limited resources have been devoted to it by the United States, which was responsible for it, of course. And in some ways, uh, McCoy suggests that Laos was a test case for future U.S. wars, the extensive reliance on uh, air power. We see that today with the use of drones. Yeah, Fred uh, also talked about that, and there's something to it. It's a test case. And uh, we have other test cases, which are pretty remarkable. Uh, just uh, very recently, a study came out by... Uh, researchers at the Seton Hall Law School appeared in the Law Journal, and I think there's more coming out in the book, uh, studying the uh, torture system. There's a very detailed article in the Seton Hall Law Journal. Uh, they point out something quite interesting. It turns out that, this is Guantanamo that they're talking about, that, that a lot of it has been exposed, but there was another uh, part of the Guantanamo torture system, the Cheney-Rumsfeld torture system, which they called the Battle Lab. And the purpose of the torture in the Battle Lab, which was supervised by medics and, you know, see how far you can go and so on, was to determine what are the most effective techniques of torture. It was a uh, laboratory experiment, not designed to get information. Uh, just let's see how much torture can be applied before the person becomes uh, uh, unable to comment. You know, psychological, uh, uh, physical uh, 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 drugs. Uh, uh, so it was essentially a laboratory of torture. And in fact, if you look at the torture system, 
take take a look at the at the Senate report. It's uh, it has one. It raises one question: Did the torture work? And it claims the torture didn't work, so it was therefore bad. And the commentary has been pretty much the same: the torture didn't work, so we shouldn't do it. What they say is the torture meaning didn't work. It means it didn't stop terrorist acts. Was that the purpose? Probably not. Uh, the initial purpose of the Cheney-Rumsfeld torture seems to have been to try to extricate some information, true or false, doesn't matter, but some kind of claim that would justify the war on Iraq. The planned war on Iraq began before the war. Uh, they were seeking to find uh, some kind of evidence that there was connections between Saddam Hussein and al-Qaeda. And when they didn't find it, they called for more torture. Uh, and finally, you know, people under torture will say anything, so they claimed they got some evidence. That was, apparently, that was the first major goal, and that was achieved. We are now in a new, yet another new era of uh, terrorism, uh, sparked by the attacks uh, in Paris. There was a lot of, of course, commentary about it was an attack on freedom of speech, uh, French values, uh, the West in general, a, a term that Edward Said would just cringe when he would hear this kind of a reductionist uh, terminology. Well, the, you were speaking of the Charlie Hebdo attack in which a dozen journalists were killed. Uh, there was one of the most interesting comments about that uh, was by uh, a leading uh, civil rights lawyer, Floyd Abrams, well known for vigorous defense of freedom of speech. He, uh, uh, he castigated the editors of the New York Times because they didn't publish the uh, uh, cartoons ridiculing Muhammad, which elicited the attack. And he said, if you really want to serve the uh, you know, the highest values of freedom of speech, you should publish those cartoons because it's important for us to, for them to be on the front page. And he said, especially this is the right way to honor the worst attack on freedom of expression in living memory. And he's right. But that's a comment on living memory, which is a category that is very carefully crafted uh, to include anything they do to us and to exclude anything we do to them. So if you go beyond the living